Dr. Bones McCoy, caring for their health and welfare. Scotty, chief engineer. Mr. Spock, the Vulcan first officer. Lieutenant Yahura, the communications officer. And new for 1976, the aliens, Klingon. Their evil threatens the universe. Gorn, half human, half beast. Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Gimme That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 16 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today I'm joined by one of the founders of our August Network, Mr. Rob Kelly, to talk about, well, growing up in the interim between uh, Star Trek The Original Series and Star Trek The Next Generation, as we both did. How are you, Rob? I'm doing just great, uh, Siskoid. I'm very happy to be here. I'm so excited that I dug my Mego Gorndal out of storage, and he is hanging on my computer as I as I sat here and record this. Yes, you sent me the picture, so I, I feel <laughs> like I should have done something special. But I've got like two action figures that I got that, that were like planted in a birthday cake at one point. I've got like Guinan and Mendon or something. So wow. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> What does the guy in action figure, like power listening action? I mean, what does that come with? I don't well, understand. She can lift up her arms, so it looks like she's, you know, standing at the bar. That, that's about it. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I can use her hat to, like, make, like, a cookie mold or something. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but Rob, anyway, before we go any further, uh, the fans need you to prove your Trek credentials. Oh, boy. Uh, I know you have them. But you need to go through that quiz, and it begins, as it always does, with the the big question, what does Trek mean to you? Well, it, when I think of Trek, basically my original memory is is watching it with my dad when I was a kid. And it was probably, you know, I can't pinpoint it exactly, but it was probably my first really interaction with science fiction, you know, in any like the concept of like this is set in the future and these are we're going to have spaceships and people that can have ray guns. Because, I mean, I think before then I was super friends and comic books and I probably read some sci fi comics. But, you know, when, when I when I roll back to my memory, Star Trek was really the beginning. Star Trek was before Star Wars and it was certainly more impactful on me than like Space 1999, which I watched, and I had the Star Trek toys, and I had the Star Trek power record, so it was probably my my entry into into sci-fi as a genre. Your favorite iteration of the show, the original series, or did you fall in Absolutely. love with it? Oh, yeah. It still is. I mean, I, I have a great appreciation for, for TNG, but it'll always be the original group for me. Do you have a favorite character f- from that iteration, or any iteration for that matter? Uh, I, Dr. McCoy. I always love, I think he's the most like me, in terms of like my 
my <laughs> they, they sort of quick to leap to conclusions and to kind of get a little over overheated uh, back when we were at the Kubert school and we were hanging out a lot. There was this dynamic of frequently that I was the Dr. McCoy to Tom Zoller's Captain Kirk because Tom always sees himself in that role anyway, in all respects of life. And uh, I definitely played the kind of cantankerous uh, you know, guy to the side there. So, and, and maybe it was the last name too, even though it's spelled differently. But uh, I, yeah, Doctor McCoy has, has always been my my favorite. Did you guys have a Spock? We had varying Spocks. Uh, <laughs> you know, it kind of rotated it enough. But it was it was generally the dynamic was you know he would see something and I would be like, what the hell is that? You know, it would be overreacting and stuff like that. So that's that's been the dynamic. And do you have a favorite alien species? That's the last question. The Gorn. I love the Gorn. Uh, I think I've told this story on Chris's show, but I have a very fond memory of, and maybe I shouldn't get into all this right right this second, but but when I was a kid, I went out with my mom and my grandmother to the mall, and they bought me a Mego Gorn doll, and not because my mother knew what it was. She has, still has no idea what Star Trek is, but it was like an alien, you know, and like the kid will like this. So she bought me the Mego Gorn doll, and we went back to my grandmother's house, and I put the TV on, and it was running that episode of Star Trek. Oh. And I just, and even though the Mego Gorn doll looks nothing like the Gorn on the show, it was still called Gorn. It was just so entrancing to have a thing in my hand that I saw on television. Like it was just like whoa, whoa, whoa. And so uh, Arena remains one of my favorite episodes, partly because I just think it's a great episode, but also because of that memory. So I love the Gorn, and I'm kind of sad the Gorn has like never really appeared again in Star Trek for the most part. Yeah, they, they appeared in uh, Enterprise. Oh, did they? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, and, you see, oh, I would never know that. <laughs> yeah, but they they made them look. You know, they were like CG, so they they look more lizard-like. Uh, you know, stranger legs. Yeah, they did sort of appear, but uh, yeah, I remember always. Liking it when they showed up, uh, like in uh, novels, which was rare, but also did happen. There's like a Picard adventure with uh, the Gorn in one of the pocketbook novels. And uh, yeah, the Gorn are, are pretty fascinating because they look like they're, they're going to be monsters, but they turn out to be on, on the right side of things. And it's a culture that, if not for the rubber suits, I wish it's something that we could have explored more on the show, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so like me and everyone our age, uh, the Star Trek adventure really begins in the 70s when there was no new Trek on TV. There's a lot of old Trek, but there's no new Trek. So how does one's fandom develop and evolve in those circumstances? Is it perhaps even enhanced by the drought of new material? That's what we're going to explore today in an episode. I don't know if we're going to call this the, the wilderness years or if it's <laughs> the wasteland. or I mean, it was still rich with Trek stuff because we grew up in that era and became Star Trek fans. So, Rob, I guess we should start at the beginning. You've already addressed some of those origins uh, in, in the survey, but how does Trek really start for you as, as far as, I guess, the syndicated program? Yeah, it was, it, you know, I was one of that. Ori I mean, I guess if you want to break down the, the Star Trek audience into generations, the first generation is, of course, people that watched it in the 60s when it aired originally. And they were the ones with the Igrox Spock and they, you know, wrote in the letters and saved it for the second season. Thursday. I guess so I'm technically second generation because I'm the I wasn't alive back then. Mm -hmm. And so I came to it. As reruns and uh, my mom and this is probably kind of an important part of it, really, is that my mom worked part time in the 70s. My dad had a job that basically paid for everything, but she worked part time. And so on Saturdays, she would be away working. She worked at a department store. And so it was just my dad and me. And on Saturday evenings at like 5 p.m., the local UHF station ran Star Trek reruns. 
And I don't think that if my mom was around, we ever would have watched it because my mother has no tolerance for science fiction <laughs> at all. And so I don't think my dad would have put it on. But my dad is open to that stuff. And so, you know, given him and me, it was like, well, my dad was kind of like, oh, well, I think he'll probably enjoy this. And so we would have a thing where he would make pizza. And that was like our thing where we would on Saturday nights watch. I think they even ran two in a row because I remembered it was right around dinner time, and we would watch Star Trek together. And that was really the beginning of where I was like, wow, this is a cool thing. And I'm sure that that bled into my begging my parents for purchases. And that's where it became, well, give me the Star Trek Mego dolls. Give me the Star Trek power records. Are there Star Trek comic books? Although there really weren't, uh, at least that I knew about at that time. But I mean, you know, I liked the Star Trek stuff enough to want to start getting it in the merchandising. And of course, when you're a kid in my age, that's when it becomes real because then your, your Spock doll is mixing with your Batman doll and your Spider-Man doll. And, you know, you're playing with the Star Trek playset, and it, you know, it all becomes grist for the mill. You know, it cements in your mind of like, Oh, this is a thing that I, I love. Cause it's like all the other stuff that I love. Yeah. I think the, the syndication element for us, I think it was playing. Well, my very earliest memory is seeing it in French. La Patrouille du Cosmos, it was called. The Cosmos Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great name. Yeah. Uh, they, they really loved the Cosmos word, uh, those French translators, because Space 1999, uh, yeah, that you mentioned, was called Cosmos 1999. Yeah. Mm. They did that a lot. So I remember watching it. We went to Montreal to visit a great aunt or something, and uh, she had like all these weird channels. And you, you, like, you'd flip the channel, and there was like people playing video games remotely on channels. <laughs> It's bizarre. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, this is the 70s or maybe early 80s or, you know, I think it's the 70s. And uh, they had Star Trek, which I'd never seen on my own TV. And it was, I remember it was the uh, Enterprise incident because it ends with Kirk with the Vulcan ears sitting in his chair. You know, they never, uh, he disguised himself as a Romulan, but he never gets the surgery back to human at the end of the show. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, you presume that that's what's going to happen. But when you're a kid... You don't know any of that stuff. And when I caught the show again on TV, whether in French or in English, the, the next, the very next time or one of the next times, it was again the Enterprise incident and I caught it like in the middle or something and I didn't see the end. For years, I was convinced as a child that there were like a batch of shows where Kirk was a Romulan, that, that he kept the ears for a number of episodes. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, I was an idiot, but the, <laughs> you know, you don't know. So, but I remember that like later on, by the time I was like the early eighties, by that time we were watching it as a family. It ran, it was syndicated. So it ran every night around dinner time. So we, we watched it as a family. And the fact that it, you know, it ran and reran and reran and reran and you would, there are only 70 some episodes. So within three months, you know, you're repeating them again. So in a year, you might watch the same episode three times, you know? And I think that's part of the reason why the original series is so... It becomes iconic after a while, you know? It's like those movies that kind of bombed at the box office back in the day, but ran on TV so often that they became cult hits or just part of the imagination, like, you know... Uh, Shawshank Redemption. Or Yeah, or uh, It's a Wonderful oh, it's Life. It's a Wonderful Life, sure, right? yeah. It's this hit film, and it's, it was rediscovered. I think the original series of Star Trek is similar to that, where it ran so often, people were watching it kind of side-eyed almost, uh, you know, the, the, like the rest of the family, so everybody knows who those characters are, and everybody's seen those episodes just because they were on TV consistently. Oh, yeah, it becomes like uh, background music after a while. So it's just part of the culture. 
And I think that's why, even though there's no new Star Trek, the fact that they did get it onto syndication, which means it ran earlier, you know, for kids, it's earlier, it's it's pre-Watershed, because you don't run those those syndicated shows once it's, you know, the networks pick up their, like, their new programming. So to kids... And to the dinner time and you're just eating in front of the TV. I think Star Trek was like, uh, that's a common experience to a lot of us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then that's a, it's a very communal thing, you know, to sit there. And I mean, again, it was like with my mom, like I, she was, she was not a fast food person. So like she would never really get us pizza. But if it was my dad who like didn't know how to cook, you know, who's like, well, let's just get pizza and watch Star Trek. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a kind of very dad thing to do. <laughs> That must have given him some uh, some brownie points as far as the kids are concerned. Oh, I, I loved it. Sure. <laughs> I don't remember much merchandise coming into the house for myself. I, you know, there's I hmm, I think somebody at one point, somebody got me a model of the Enterprise, uh, like a model kit. But I was never very good with those. So it stayed in the box. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> tried to, to like assemble it sort of. But, you know, I'm so awful with that stuff. You remember any <laughs> any other uh, tours of merchandise that you might have gotten your hands on? I remember, I, again, all the Mego stuff was huge because, again, you could you could inter yeah, the characters could interact, which was it, it gives kind of like lesser characters a little more legitimacy. Like to me. The super friends, the superheroes were like the pinnacle. So if like, you know, all of a sudden they're they're mingling with Tarzan and the mad monsters and the Star Trek characters, it's all like, oh, well, they're all just great. You know, I mean, I can have Spock do the nerve pinch on the Joker and it works. You know, it's like fantastic. It'd be funny if it weren't so pathetic. No, what the heck? I'll laugh anyway. <laughs> Highly illogical. Um, one of the things that, that always made me laugh, though, was that there was a a line of Star Trek merchandise in the 70s. And I think they were like model kits, maybe. I don't exactly remember. And they were like maybe little mini die cast things. But the brand name was Dinky. That was the name of the company. And their tagline was join the Dinky Starfleet. And I just remembered, even as a kid, being like, this doesn't sound as good as you guys think it sounds. <laughs> I got to find one of those ads. It was just like, they're like, really? That's the licensor that managed to get the Trek license? Uh, I also, I, to this point, I haven't mentioned the um, Star Trek animated series. That was another big thing. that Because that ran back to back with the other filmations that I watched, which was the Batman cartoons and the Superman cartoons and, of course, the Aquaman cartoons. And, you know, the Star Trek cartoon was great. It was terrific. So, I mean, that was... And you mentioned, yeah, there was only 79 episodes, but, you know, I mean, 79 uh, and for a kid's attention span, that seems like a long time. You know, I mean, that's you that's if you ran them two, twice a week, that's a long time before you start looping them again. Now, I'm sure they didn't play everyone. I'm sure they didn't play the cage or whatever. But for the most part, you know, uh, but yeah, I mean, and, the, and again, I don't want to short the power records. I loved the power records as a kid. I mean, I have a whole podcast about it, me and me and Chris. Right. So, and the Star Trek power records are particularly very good. The sleeve art by Neil Adams is great. And so those were a big thing too. And I begged my parents for that kind of, so I was a fairly easy kid to, I didn't have expensive tastes. And so I think they indulged me that stuff because they didn't ask for a lot. You know, I didn't, I surely didn't need sporting equipment. So, I mean, they were willing to spend whatever money they had to spend on me for that stuff. And so they kind of indulged me with it. So I remember having like all the Enterprise characters and the aliens and like the whole bit. For me, I think, I guess the, I was a kid that 
started reading very early, and so whenever I wanted something, it was always a book. It was like a comic book, a graphic album, but books. So just preteen, I think, Columbia House was advertising this science fiction book club, and my mom was getting books through Columbia House. You know, we lived in a small town. Ordering books sometimes seemed like a good idea <laughs> because our own bookstores, you know, were pretty limited. Or so there was a science fiction book club, and uh, you know, as soon as I saw that, or maybe she offered, I don't know, I subscribe to that and you would get books they're all hardcover it's like something that you might find otherwise in a paperback but they were all hardcover books and they had quite a, a number of the early star trek and star wars novels which you know i i gobbled up i you know you've got to order something this month well it's going to be yesterday's sun it's going to be uh the romulan stratagem it's gonna, you know <laughs> those those early books and one of those books was the motion picture Oh boy. Adaptation <laughs> by Gene Roddenberry himself. And, uh, you know, for the longest time, that was my motion picture. I did not see the motion picture when it came out. I was uh, too young to go to a, an English language movie theater. So I had that book. And still to this day, when I think about that movie, I'm actually creating scenes that are not in the <laughs> film, but that are in the book. You know, the book was, the, the book was my actual introduction to that film. Uh, have you read that? No, I never have. I, I I have such a tough time with that movie that any of the ancillary stuff really <laughs> doesn't appeal to me. Although I have read the Marvel Comics adaptation. Yeah, well, the book is isn't as long okay, as the okay. film. <laughs> I'll say that. But it, you know, at the end, it's like the the effects that are described are not possible on the film sure. itself. You know, it's like really the the true vision. Let's talk about the ramp up to the motion picture because that's also part of the '70s experience. Were you at all aware? I wasn't, but. Uh, you know, too young for that. But were you aware of the, you know, Star Trek Phase Two, the the TV show revival that then became the motion picture? No, I never had any clue of that stuff. I, I have gone back over the years and listened to a lot of Star Trek books, you know, like history. Like I've lit, like the two Shatner books, which you know, I've heard some. There's some doubts about the veracity of those. I don't know. I find them highly entertaining. But I've gone back and read some other books about the, the history of it. So I, I find all that stuff really fascinating and like the whole thing with like David Gautreaux to get, you know, kind of so close and then not quite and whatever. And the fact that it was a failed network. But no, I didn't know about any of that stuff at the time because I wasn't I, I didn't read Starlog. I didn't read famous. I read famous monsters sort of. Every so often. So I was not a kid that was behind the scenes. Ironically now, because I'm all about being behind the scenes and stuff. That's all I want to know about. But back then, I, I that stuff just didn't it wasn't really on my radar. It, it just wasn't available to us. I mean, really. It's not like today the Internet tells all whether you want to know it or not. Yeah, but, uh But, you know, 70s, 80s. You had to buy those special magazines, you know, you had to, you know, I, I used, I remember I used to buy like one movie related magazine a year, like, and had like, oh, a superhero movie special or something, you know, <laughs> full of news about, you know, James Cameron's Spider-Man or whatever. But <laughs> that's, that's what you, you kind of had to do if you wanted to know the behind the scenes, you know, the Fangoria stuff. So that was very rare for me. I wasn't aware of it until I started buying Star Trek books about the making of the show and the films. And uh, there it was, that whole story and how, you know, a lot of that stuff you know, eventually made it, those plot points eventually made it into uh, next gen. But yeah, no, no idea. So the movie era, that opens the movie. Did you see the motion picture when it came out or did you have to wait? You know, it's strange because my father took me and my sister to every big movie that was out there from basically the late 70s. Just to give a little bit of history. I lived in Philadelphia with my uh, my father was married before and he had three kids. 
And then uh, he got divorced and married my mom and my mom and my dad had me. So I have three half siblings. We all lived together in, in Philadelphia until 1979. And then we moved to New Jersey in April of 79. And then my my dad because my all my siblings are older than me, but my younger of the two sisters that I had, my father took me and her out to see every week. We went out to see something every week. He wanted to make sure that, like, you know, sort of keeping up with everybody. And so we would go out together and we saw every cool movie. I have my father to thank for having seen every Star Wars movie, every Star Trek movie, Raiders, every James Bond, E.T. I mean, pretty much any big movie that came out from the late 70s to the mid 80s. I have my dad to thank for taking me. So I am sure that he would have taken me to Star Trek The Motion Picture because I would have died to see it. I was a Star Trek fan. He liked Star Trek. There were Star Trek ads in comic books, you know, all over the place Mm -hmm. with that beautiful poster. But I have zero memory of seeing it in the theater. I mean, zero. And I remember seeing, you know, High Road to China. You know, I remember seeing Conan the Destroyer. We saw a lot of garbage. And yet uh, I have no memory of Star Trek, the motion picture, and he has no memory. I actually asked him. So I, I can't guarantee that we did. It, it seems impossible that we wouldn't have, but I, I have zero memory of it. You would have been, what, six, seven at the time? Uh, 70 came out in 79. I would have been eight. So I mean, but I remember my mom taking me to see the cat from outer space. You know, <laughs> I remember my, my parents taking me to see the omen when I was five. <laughs> Uh, you know, but I have no memory of the motion picture. So it's, it's, it's weird that we have no verifiable proof that we actually did see it. I know that I didn't, but the, the year where I started very early eighties is where I started going to the movies alone. My mom was like yours, was not a science fiction fan. She would, you know, get her courage together once a, once in a while and bring the kids to the science fiction movie. And then she'd, she'd act like she liked it. You know, (laughs) she was, no, she really, she, she didn't want us to be disappointed so she would always say she liked it uh, even though she didn't understand anything she would always praise the special effects which was basically that meant she didn't understand a damn thing (laughs) interesting (laughs) yeah that's what she always did and it was very rare eventually because we were old enough to go and certainly i was but if you had to go to the drive-in then we had to go to the states the only drive-in was on the other side of the border and uh so you can't do that without a car so she'd have to take us she took us to see dune and whoa david lynch's dune and uh star trek 5 the final frontier were both (laughs) (laughs) so each time she went well i like the special effects you know kind of thing (laughs) because she didn't want to disappoint us and we did not want to tell her those were terrible movies, you know, oh, that we disliked them. <laughs> did you get when you went to see Dune? Did you get the little pamphlet that they handed out before the movie started so you could understand it? No, I, it was like a drive-in, so I, I bet we didn't. I mean, I don't remember any. I probably would have kept that because I'm a pack rat, uh, but um, <laughs> you know, it, it was not. It was not good. But but we couldn't tell her that because she went through all the trouble and we knew she suffered through it. Oh boy. Yeah, those are movies you suffer through. I mean, Dune is not a movie that's easy, especially if you're not at all invested in, you know, in the novel or whatever. It's just, what is this? Uh, (laughs) And it's just gruesome. It's like a gruesome adaptation of it. Anyways, uh, but the same, it happened for Star Trek V as well. It was like, 
I like the special effects. You mean the unfinished special effects, which are like very, <laughs> like really terrible, the worst in the franchise. Uh, but Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, was one of those very first movies I went to see alone in the theater. Uh, like the very first, I remember the very first time I went to the theater alone was Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then within a year, ah. it's, like, it's like Wrath of Khan. So, so the the first few movies I saw were all iconic. Uh, genre films that have you know remained classics so wrath of khan was one of the first ones i saw I, i'm sure i cried because i still do but <laughs> and then i saw each one you know in turn uh all through final frontier and then mm -hmm. and then you know and then i went to college undiscovered country is after the uh, right. the wasteland or whatever so what are your uh your memories of the movie era well i do i i distinctly remember seeing trek 2 in the theater and just thinking it was the greatest thing ever you know it was just fantastic i loved every minute of it i still do um i, I think i've said probably on maybe film and water when we covered the movie but to me it's like the spock death scene is like the only death scene i can think of in all of like fiction that still retains its power even though you know it's being undone in the very next installment i mm -hmm. i can't think of any other examples where where you know it's like when superman dies at the end of bvs you're like well he'll be back in a minute you know and it means nothing but the, that Spock scene is still so powerful. So I remember being a kid and just being really wrecked by it. Uh, and by that point, Marvel had the Star Trek license. And so they had the, the Marvel comic book. And I, I bought the Marvel comic. I remember that. Um, so that, that was exciting. And there weren't any toys. There weren't any Star Trek II toys, which was very frustrating. And it seems like somebody missed a real bet there that Kenner or somebody didn't pick up the Trek 2 license. I don't know why Star Trek as, as an action figure line just has never really quite connected with people. But uh, that was a big deal. And then I saw Star Trek 3 in a drive-in. I remember that. Uh, up in the Poconos, uh, which I've mentioned on thousands of other shows. So that was really cool. I saw Star Trek 4. By that time, I was old enough to see it on my own. like go And I went to a mall, and I remember seeing it on an afternoon showing like on a Saturday, and it was the, the theater was packed. And that was one of the great movie experiences of all time because it was that movie. It's my favorite Trek movie. It's my single favorite piece of Trek anything. And uh, it just – it was one of those movies where – Everyone just had such a great time. Everybody was laughing at the right parts and getting excited at the right parts. And it was, it just like it, there was this feeling of like just warmth in the theater because they're just everyone enjoyed the hell out of that movie. That's sort of what I think of as like my childhood version of Trek. Because by the time Trek Five came along, I graduated high school, and then in Trek Six, I was at art school by then. So I think of myself in a different phase then. So Trek Four is really kind of the end of my childhood version of Trek, and it's really, of course the last piece of Trek where there wasn't more Trek because between four and five next generation came out. So up until Trek four, the only Star Trek, you know, that was live action really was the movies. That's all you had. That's, and you know, to rewatch it in reruns. But so that's to me that I sort of, in my mind, that's where like one era of Trek ends is with Trek four. Uh, and I bought the DC comic series because of course DC picked up the license at that point. So, you know, I was, you know, in my, my fandom for it faded once next generation came along because it just then it was like well there was a lot more to consume and i could sort of pick and choose and start church Trek five was the you know like oh boy but uh <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. but i mean up until that point it was you know i loved all of it really uh, as for the action figures the star trek line you know i have a feeling that the reason they didn't pick up more steam i mean they made a lot of them you know later on but 
they all have the same bodies, you know. The, uni <laughs> yeah. the uniforms make them all kind of the same, whereas you had a lot more diversity with, you know, people love to collect the Star Wars figures. But they're all, you know, there are a lot of different ones. Whereas Star Trek, when you looked at the at the walls of Star Trek action figures, you know, in the 90s, they all had that Picard body, all of them. So uh, just either painted different colors or... So maybe that's the reason, especially Star Trek II, you had... Everybody wore the same uniform. There's not even a color variation. So the details would be, there's a bit of very small details and just different heads. I don't know. Maybe that's it. I have a, uh, a Star Trek figure for old McCoy when he appears on Encounter at Farpoint. Okay. And I think that body is unique because it's all kind of withered and slightly hunched. So I think they actually did make a new sculpt for that one. A little bit more effort. Uh, yeah. yeah and, uh, obviously, when you've got like, somebody who has a more alien body, they, they had to work. But uh, I'm guessing the molding on those, the, those things were like pretty cheap for with the toy company because you had so many Starfleet bodies you know, to work with. Mm -hmm. You talked about you know Next Generation starting and maybe that's sort of the end point of these wilderness years or as far as this conversation goes you remember the the ramp up to next gen and how you felt about star trek starting over um i yeah vaguely i i mean i remembered they, that it was like in syndication which was like well when is it on like it was that kind of just like when can i you know and i mean it's hard for people to that are younger than us to remember that there was a time where You know, not all TV was accessible 24-7. Uh, but, you know, I mean, at the time, there was basically just three three channels. And having new programming on a on a non-network network was, like, weird. You know, it was like, really? We're gonna gonna... But then I got into it. You know, we got then learned, oh, it's on Saturdays at 7 o'clock. Okay, great. No, I, I liked it from the beginning because I just – I liked all the characters. I thought especially Picard was just super, you know, just a great character. And so, no, I, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. And if anything, it's the unfortunate time. I don't mean to keep like, kind of going back to this, but like the unfortunate timing that Next Gen started pretty much just before Star Trek V came out. It was like a real handing of the torch because it was like, you know, wow, this new show is pretty good. And wow, this old crew really doesn't really have it anymore. And I think it was kind of a handing off. And of course, you know, they would do Trek Six, which would prove that. Yeah, no, they could still crank out a good movie. But it was, I think, in a weird way, if you're a next-gen fan, like, and you were, like, more of a, a next-gen fan than you were an original series fan, you can't have a better example that, that Star Trek is a malleable franchise and it's not just related to those seven characters than the idea that, you know, well, what are you going to watch, Star Trek V or next-gen? You know, come on, there's no real comparison here. So, but I remember it being, you know, a big deal because it was, like, In 87, uh, there was Star Wars was done, you know, and it was mm -hmm. never, as far as we knew, not coming back, not ever coming back. So there was kind of a dearth of like franchises. There were no, the Superman movies had sputtered to a conclusion. Uh, much like, you know, your mom taking you to the awful Star Trek V, my mom took me to the awful Superman IV. Uh, there was no Batman movie, so there just wasn't as much. So Star Trek was kind of a nice, like, oh, there's this at least. You know, they're giving me new Star Trek. That's cool. That's a good point because, you know, looking at that era, We can sort of compare it to like recent years because it was kind of the same where after Enterprise and by that time, not too many people were watching Star Trek as before. So for some, it, it had ended several years before that. But we haven't had, you know, we didn't have any Star Trek for uh, the better part of a decade. And then a few movies and now, the, you know, now a new show uh, and the ramp up to that new show. So I was sort of trying to compare 
what we lived through in the 70s and 80s and wondering if, you know, maybe the kids, you know, who were raised in this second wilderness uh, and who have access to so many more Star Trek shows on, you know, whatever channels, Spike TV or, you know, they're, they're running them 24-7 plus Netflix. I, I'm sure there are kids who were raised through the 2000s where there was new, new Star Trek, but plenty of Star Trek to watch. If they had the same kind of, I'm going to call it ownership that second generation fans had, uh, as we've discussed. And I don't mm -hmm. think, I don't think they do it, just because there's so much science fiction and genre stuff now there's so many more many more choices when it you know back back then you had star trek and you had very little else of you know similar quality but after next gen a lot of people started copying that and you know you had your sequest and your stargates and your uh, a lot of shows that kind of had the next gen template kind of thing gene ronberry's andromeda all of that you know so some of it legit you know just a lot of shows were just star trek crews in another context and today i mean once you had sci-fi channels that were basically buying you know science fiction pilots and taking them to, to, to full programs we've got a lot of science fiction now available full channels devoted to it plenty of it on on streaming services and all the backlog of all those shows is all available at any time uh, mm. so it, it's not like it's not the treasure that the original series was when that's all we had yeah is there some truth to that uh yeah i mean i you know i've talked on other episodes when about you know newsstand distribution that you know i can't really be romantic for it because the reality is it's a pain in the ass you know but there is something to be said for the mystery and the anticipation of not knowing what's coming and You know, I still remember sitting on the floor in my house in Philadelphia and my dad putting Star Trek on and literally having no idea what I was about to see. We didn't read. We didn't get TV guide. There weren't commercials. I was completely a blank slate. And that's very exciting. You know, and I, I mean, I, it's better now to know what's coming and, you know, when it airs and you can record it or it's going to be on Hulu the next day. But there there is a you know, there is something really thrilling about, you know, I'm about to watch a new Star Trek. And, to, you know, as a kid, I'm, it's new to me. I have no idea what I'm about to see. It might be a great one or it might be, you know, Space Lincoln. I don't know, you know, and that's that's really cool. And you mentioned about, you know, fandom and how you can't turn the stuff off. Like I know stuff about movies that are, you know, two years away from being made. And I wish I didn't know, you know, I wish I didn't know that they were talking to Tom Hardy to play Venom. I would just like to learn, you know, oh, wow, they made a movie with Tom Hardy as Venom. But instead, I'm like, you know, practically in the room when they're signing the contracts because you just can't turn that stuff off. You know, I don't want to go back to that world. But at the same time, there is something nice to just not know and have it be delivered in front of you and you just take it in. Yeah, it makes it. I don't know. It, it, probably at, at the time as well, you never know anything. So everything's a surprise, whether it's good or bad. You're not expecting. I was not expecting Spock to die in Wrath of Khan. There's no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, today you can hide that. You know, it's be very hard to hide that. Yeah, I had no idea going in that that's what they were going to do. No clue. I mean, there I knew that there was a groundswell among fans, but I, as we talked about earlier, I wasn't following that stuff. So, yeah, it was it, it came as a real bombshell. Especially since, like I said, you know, lived in a small town. When Wrath of Khan came to the theater, that wasn't like the first week. There's just no way. The the way it worked back then, we got the movies whenever we got the movies. And, you know, I look at some dates and it's really not. We only had two theaters, two rooms. And there were a lot more movies coming out than that. So you'd get them sort of in a queue and eventually you'd get it. And you'd only get it for a week and never more than Whoa. a week. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's all you got. 
So sometimes you could go and see it again at the drive-in on the other side of the, the river. Most of the time, you know, it, it came once and, you know, sometimes they made some weird choices and not very good movies came instead <laughs> of very good movies. So, you know, so Wrath of Khan, probably not, didn't see it on opening night, you know, even though I, I probably went on our opening night or our equivalent of opening night. If we had the internet and there was still the same kind of shitty theater, I would have known, you know, I would have been spoiled it long before I, I could actually go see the movie. Right. Not that movie theaters work like that anymore. I, I'm hoping. <laughs> I, I just don't go see movies in, in my hometown anymore. I mean, it's... So, yeah. So, are we big Star Trek fans because of the way it was delivered when we were kids? That's, Does that have anything I, yeah. to do with it? You know, that's... I, I just was... I, a little while ago, I had I did an episode with David Ace Gutierrez over on Film and Water where we kind of talked about the subject where I, where I realized that I think I'm more of a fan of the original crew than I am... Star Trek specifically, because Discovery just, you know, at least at the, as of this recording, just doesn't appeal to me. And so I'm not going to make the effort to go see it. But I, I don't know. But I, I also would love it if somebody started telling me, no, 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 Discovery is awesome. You got to watch it because then I'd be into it. You know what I mean? So. Um, yeah, I think that I have those warm feelings for the original series and, and I still occasionally will play the original series on Netflix, like, you know, cause they have the whole show. So, and I go back and I relive that world and those are, they're just, they're really fun to watch again. They hold up really well. I mean, that's not a, that's not a new statement. Obviously they've been, been playing for 50 years, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think that is, it, it, I have such an affection for, the world that Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn and everybody else built that it continues to hold my interest, even though there have been so many other iterations of Star Trek that just have not interested me. And I've given everyone a shot. I mentioned on that show that like I've seen every TOS, I've seen every TNG. I watched a couple seasons of DS9 and then I sort of faded, even though I know now know that many everyone says it's the best one. I watched like a year of Voyager and I watched like three episodes of Enterprise. Like I, you know, I just got like, I can't do this anymore. But uh, you know, if, if they make a fourth Star Trek movie uh, with this crew, I'll be there, you know, I'll totally be on board. So yeah, it, it obviously got under my skin at a young age enough that it's still with me four, God, four decades later. It's like rewrites your DNA and <laughs> sort of thing. Well, thank you for spending this, uh, this short while with me, Rob. You know, I'm going to let you go back to the transporter room and beam yourself. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you can use the console yourself. You just beam yourself because I got to stay. And uh, after the, the break, I'm going to pick up... Uh, God, if uh, people remember the episode where I reviewed every single original series <laughs> episode, I'm going to pick up that baton and do the interim in review form. So after the break, you know, subspace transmissions, Star Trek news, your feedback, but also <laughs> uh, I'm going to go through every piece of Star Trek that was uh, that aired between the end of the original series and the beginning of next generation. It's not, it's not as long as the last time. So, it, but buckle in. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, the, the animated series and a few movies. So that's next. Thanks again, Rob. Thank you. Beginning in 2018, the who's who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the loose leaf editions featuring superman by jerry ordway the joker by brian bolland wonder woman by george perez sandman by mike dringenberg batman by norm brayfogel the jli by adam hughes 
Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Ken Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek. The Forever People again? You are f***ing kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. Welcome back to the show. As I said, if you remember episode 8, I did reviews for the entire original series episodes. And so we're continuing on from there. Uh, this is, again, material adapted from... Cisco's blog of geekery, uh, where I wrote many Star Trek reviews more than 10 years ago now. But you're also going to hear clips from other podcasters, uh, mostly on the movie era in the back end of this section. So we're covering today all the episodes that came out during the wilderness years. That means the animated series and then the movie era. Let's start with that animated series. What do you make of it, Spock? Its first episode, Beyond the Farthest Star. First, a few notes on the animated series as a whole. Though it may contradict some parts of the canon, I don't think it does so much more than the old Klingon makeups or different warp scales or Star Trek V do. It's got its own style, but I think it's a worthy successor to the original series and can be considered the rest of the five-year mission. These are the stories that couldn't be told because of budget restrictions. Though a new restriction is the 30-minute Saturday morning format, so it's all about plot. Not much about characterization. I also don't imagine the redshirt death toll will get very high in that kitty time slot. I'm very glad to hear the voices of the original cast, however, which is what makes this a true continuation of the Enterprise's adventures. The animation's a little stiff by today's standards, something that is translated into the voice work of some of the cast. The Spock, in particular, takes on the role of the teacher with documentary-style delivery and a tendency to talk about educational topics like insect honeycombs in this episode. Scotty, McCoy, and Uhura are much more emotional uh, and better-acted characters, at least in this first cartoon. Where the animation fails in one department, it succeeds in others, in particular with showing us things that would have been impossible with the original series effects. We're going to get some truly alien creatures and environments this time. The pod ship is particularly beautiful in Beyond the Furthest Star, for example. This episode does a good job of capturing the exploration aspects of the live-action show, with the old trick cliches of the alien entity and the takeover of the ship thrown in for good measure. Standard fare, made better by the, the sets, if you will. Uh, it introduces a couple of new concepts, like the bridge security system and life support belts, which are fine. Mr. Kyle gains a mustache, to make him more visually distinctive, that's okay too, though it does make him look a little old. The alien gets dispatched a bit heartlessly at the end, although that depends on how many people it's killed over the centuries. One thing I really liked was that Kirk's first and last logs have identical elements, namely mission star charting, which is a cool way of saying this stuff is routine for the crew of the Enterprise. Nice touch by Where No Man Has Gone Before writer Sam Peoples. Looking at this... One wonders whether animation could be the way forward for more TNG or DS9 or Voyager stories, with the actors 
picking up exactly where they left off. So this has a medium rewatchability, as my score goes. Uh, it's a routine runaround, but it serves as a fine introduction to the animated series and what it can do visually. Then comes Yesteryear, which gives us some real insight into Spock and Vulcan, uh, and is a surprisingly uncompromising story. The travelers are returning. What a trip, Bones. With DC Fontana doing the writing and the return of some of the classic elements from the original series, like the Guardian of Forever, uh, Vulcan, and Spock's parents, Yesteryear has a lot of things going in its favor. It succeeds on more than that basis, though. Uh, for one thing, time travel paradoxes have always been interesting to me, and the twist here is that Spock was always meant to go back in time, since he remembered a long-lost cousin. A good premise, made better by the return of Mark Leonard as Sarek, a man very hard on his young son. Indeed, I thought this was a very realistic take on the family situation for Saturday morning viewing. The death of Spock's pet, Salat, is equally surprising, and the episode does a fair job of teaching kids to handle the heartbreaking death of a pet a not uncommon occurrence in the life of a child. You don't see cuddly animals dying much anymore in cartoons, I don't think. This episode offers good reason to think of the animated series as canonical, uh, with the various insights on Vulcan culture, for example, the explanation offered for their logical society's many ancient rituals, and on Spock's family. His mother gets her canonical last name, Grayson, from this episode, for example. We see Spock decide to embrace his Vulcan half more than his human half. And what about that funky parallel history where Kirk's first officer is an Andorian? The episode falters in some of the voice work, though, especially young Spock's stilted dialogue. My research indicates that they use the child actor's cold reading audition, and it shows. Earther! Barbarian! Emotional Earther! The other Vulcan kids are much too emotional, and the new ghostly voice for the Guardian is vastly inferior to the original. The Salat is okay, but other alien creatures are a little too fantasy-inspired for my taste. It's a hallmark of the series, I'm afraid. And there's the matter of Kirk returning to the Guardian without all the baggage from City on the Edge of Forever. But those are just details. High rewatchability, this one. I can see why it would actually win an Emmy. Uh, Yesteryear is very relevant to the character of Spock, brings up various fairly adult issues, and even manages to come off as touching. Of interest to any fan of the original series. Episode 3, One of Our Planets is Missing. A silly title, but it's a fair action episode that, in a roundabout way, might teach your kids about anatomy. The brain, the digestive system, that it doesn't really rise above that is mainly due to the derivative nature of the plot. Deadly spacefaring gas cloud, been there, done that. Uh, alien thing that eats planets, likewise. Uh, draining power in the belly of, of the beast, sure. A mind meld is the only way out, of course. Uh, Star Trek wasn't done with any of these concepts by any means, but it may be interesting to watch this episode to see how similar it is to the motion picture. Uh, one of our planets features some pretty neat visuals, uh, including ship effects that mirror the look of the original series, like the close in and above we always see when breaking the galactic barrier. Uh, Bob Wesley from The Ultimate Computer is back for a cameo. That's always fun and interesting. We also meet Chekhov's replacement, the alien Lieutenant Eriks. We don't know much about him yet, but he at least looks unusual. I also like that the animated series gives him a chance to look at new parts of the ship, in this case, the inside of the engines. As for the main dilemma, it's well handled, and though the entity sounds a lot like the companion, same universal translator maybe, we realize it's all a misunderstanding due to size. Good mind meld sequence, though the resolution's all a bit tidy. Where did the creature come from? Where does it go? At least there's some tension with Kirk threatening to blow up the Enterprise, and in the ethical dilemma about whether or not to warn Mantilles, the evacuation of its children, etc. 
medium rewatchability here. Not a clunker by any means. One of our planets works fine, but saddles us with an omnipresent sense of déjà vu. Episode for the Lorelei Signal, in which the women of the Enterprise finally get their chance to be action heroes. Watch out for the singing, though. Uh, the myth of the sirens is brought to the Star Trek universe with this episode, which really scans like a third season episode with what with that heavy-handed science fantasy. There's no real reason why a planet would emit radiation that would kill all males, but give females the powers needed to attract and subjugate other males from across the universe. No reason except to make this story possible. It's patently ridiculous, and the revelation comes as dull exposition towards the end. That said, the incapacitation of all the male crew members gives the ladies a real chance to shine. And that's something I would have liked to see in the original series proper. Uhura is great in command of the starship, Nichelle Nichols being more engaging than most uh, in her line readings. And Nurse Chapel gets something to do as well. I get a real kick out of seeing an all-woman security team blaze away with phasers. Phasers on stun, fire. <laughs> The all-female antagonists actually manage to look beautiful despite the often generic drawing style of the series, and their culture's architecture is successful too. A great alien look that could probably not have been achieved on the live-action series. Marks off for the rather awful singing, not only the notes associated with the women's powers, but Scotty's ballad as well. Taurus 2 was visited before in the Galileo 7, so that seems to be a bit of a nomenclature snafu. And again, it looks like the more recent series mine from the cartoon, uh, since the plot is very close to Voyager's favorite son. So we definitely learned that female Starfleet officers are every bit as competent as their male counterparts, and much less prone to fall for a pretty face. Medium rewatchability, because I love to see Uhura in command. I'm a big Sulu fan. Uhura does surpass him as my favorite original crew member during the, the strictly TOS and TAS era. But the story suffers from a harebrained premise. Episode 5, More Tribbles, More Troubles. Okay, well, I've never been a big fan of The Trouble with Tribbles, though I admire some of his qualities. Uh, David Gerald's sequel has much less to admire about it, unfortunately, and it seems to just be going through the paces based on the original episode's popularity. For one thing, it's all much too close to the original, as we return to Sherman's planet, again with Quadro Triticali, and again meet Koloth and Korax, played actually by Gerald here, and again the Klingons get their ship saddled with unwanted tribbles. It's nice to see Cyrano Jones return, charmingly voiced by Stanley Adams returning to the role, sidestepping any mention of his K-7 sentence. Uh, though William Campbell doesn't in the role of Koloth, he's played by James Doohan instead. The Tribbles are now growing fat instead of reproducing thanks to some genetic engineering, or are they? There's a good twist at the end regarding that. The Tribbles are more animated, obviously, and Kirk rolling a big one off his chair is a funny riff on the original episode. However, they are far from impressive, all tinted in the same shade of pink and becoming increasingly ridiculous as they grow in size. Some interesting ship designs make an appearance as the cartoon creators take advantage of their lack of budget restrictions. The new Klingon weapon is interesting, but largely wasted and less than canonical. The Glomer, a creature that eats tribbles, is fairly outlandish, but its scenes are somewhat disturbing to me. A certain axe commercial comes to mind. Overall, I'd call the whole exercise mindless fluff. Because you can't go back to the well unless there's actually water in it. So low rewatchability. If it went somewhere else with the idea, maybe. But there are just too many returning elements to make this memorable. Koloth here could be any Klingon, and the story is basically on autopilot, despite a couple of cute moments. Moving on to The Survivor, in which the Romulans are back, 
Uh, it features a shape-changing alien whose true form is so strange that it could never have been done on live-action series. And that's fine. And it adds depth to the Star Trek universe, though it does seem off-style sometimes. At least there's an explanation for Vendorians not ever being seen. Carter Winston uh, is voiced by Ted Knight of Mary Tyler Moore Show fame, which may interest his fans. Uh, speaking of aliens, the episode is also the first appearance of the cat-like communications officer, Mares. Like Eric's, we don't learn anything about her here, and why she's even there is a mystery, since Nichelle Nichols voices another character in this episode and was obviously available. Too cute a design for my taste, but probably targeting the kitties. A third species here is the Romulans, which are back in full force. Excellent. And they prove to be more duplicitous than in the original series. The Vendorian connection is fairly well thought out, and we can understand why Winston would cooperate with them. The romantic component of the story is fine too, though perhaps unrealistic that Anne Norid would fall for the alien. It's kind of sweet, though some may think too sweet. I have a problem with the Vendorian in this story. It's where he shapeshifts into a deflector field. That seems a bit much, especially after being afraid of being burned by acid. I must mention the direction of this episode, which isn't something that tends to attract attention on the animated series. The fight with Kirk flying towards camera, the zoom in on Winston after he transforms, the various reveals, they're all well handled and show some flair. It makes this story more dynamic than the previous one, in my opinion. Also of note is the mention of McCoy's daughter, previously cut from The Way to Eden, and remaining more or less canonical to this day. Medium rewatchability, the cartoons all tend to feel a little irrelevant. Unless they're really something special, they'll score a medium, I guess. Otherwise, this is a good little one-off episode. Episode 7, The Infinite Vulcan. Vulcans do not condone the meaningless death of any being. Spock's death is meaningless. If it is only to create a giant version of himself. It is not just a duplicate. He will be the beginning of a master race. He... Uh, Walter Koenig tries his hand at writing an episode of Star Trek and manages to prove that William Shatner isn't the only one in the cast with a poison pen. Wow, this is pretty terrible. It starts off well enough with a landing party exploring a planet where plant life evolved to fill the usual animal niches, right up to the sentient life forms. The Phylosians are cool and believable, as far as these things go, with some interesting vegetable ship designs to boot. The animal life is less well handled, between a tribble with legs and a flying monster that would be ludicrous even in a game of Dungeons and & Dragons. And then it all falls apart. The giant clone of a survivor of the eugenics wars kidnaps Spock, removes his mind, puts it inside a giant Spock, the first in an army of Spock clones that will impose peace and order on the universe. Like, what? There's no explanation for why the clones are so large, uh, nor would it be practical or scientifically possible. It's just dumb. Making Dr. Caniclius a mutant from the eugenics wars is basically a throwaway link to the original series and only diminishes Khan's stature. And why, why use a plot device similar to Spock's brain when that episode is considered a big miss by everyone? The whole thing devolves into long exposition that only barely explains why the characters are acting the way they are. By the end, I'm more annoyed than anything. With the final joke making no sense and even playing off Asian cliches, Sulu is inscrutable and suddenly uses martial arts. It scores a low. The premise is ridiculous and the positive spin on creating a master race is unwittingly insulting. A low point of the series, please leave the writing to the writers. And it gets even stranger. The magics of Megas 2. It's daring, I'll give it that, but... It's the first but not the last crime committed against Star Trek by writer Larry Brody, because he also wrote Tattoo for Voyager. 
I do give him points for sheer audacity. The crew visits the Galactic Center in record time to investigate the theory that the Big Bang was, one, in the center of the galaxy, not the universe, and two, that if the universe was created there, it must still be creating matter. A fantastic idea? No matter, since the rest of the episode will deal with magic using beings who once visited Earth but were burned in the Salem witch trials. I guess worse. Not only does Kirk and Spock conveniently learn to use magic, but they also make friends with Lucifer, who, in a major twist, turns out to be a nice guy and totally misunderstood by history. Really seems like a strange message to send over Saturday morning TV, and I can imagine some people would actually be offended by the idea. I have more problem with Kirk coming to Lucian's defense. Uh, it seems out of character for him not to question things, and it just comes across as a necessary plot point. For all that, the episode remains imaginative, with Kirk duking it out in a sorcerer's duel and the outlandish science drawing a chuckle, a good reason to not consider the animated series canonical. In fact, blogger friend Bully, the little stuffed bull, had this to say about it, that the episode is also famous for having a very early star date if these things are actually supposed to make sense. So if you assume they run chronologically which isn't necessarily a safe assumption, he says, it would occur shortly after TOS's Where No Man Has Gone Before, the second pilot, suggesting that the Enterprise has gone from the distant edge of the galaxy to its central core within a matter of days back-to-back. -back. Make of that what you will. How do you vote? So either low or medium, you might get a kick from this episode and it's never really boring, then again, it's so stupid and offensive, you might not even want to check it out. So the rewatchability score really depends on your PC meter, I think. Episode 9, Once Upon a Planet. Oh, it's just as beautiful as I remembered it. Nothing's changed. Well, this looks like the same spot we beamed down on on our first visit. Remember, Doctor, when we saw the White Rabbit? <laughs> yes, and all because I said this place made me feel like Alice in Wonderland. It's a Shore Leave sequel. So as with More Tribbles, More Troubles, we revisit an original series episode. This time, new territory is charted instead of regurgitating the same plot. We finally get to see the underside of the Shore Leave planet and how it works. The Keeper has died since the last time we visited and the machines have taken to their newfound freedom. These machines look pretty cool and sound a lot like Nomad, who I'm a big fan of. Great interplay between them and both Uhura and Kirk, and though it's a surprise that Kirk doesn't blow the uppity computer to Kingdom Come, considering his track record, the ending works. On top of that, the Enterprise also gets in trouble as the anti-grav generators fail, something that could never have been shown on the live-action series. It's an achievement, in my view, that though based on older material, the episode still manages to be rather original. There are still some flaws, including the fantasy monsters, though the dragon does provide some moments for Sulu and McCoy, and Mares, who is turning out to be pretty boring and even annoying, mostly due to Majel Barrett's poor voice work on her. Nichelle Nichols' nice voice would have been put to better use than vocalizing for an interminable 40 seconds. But we can agree, these are minor problems. The lesson to be learned from this episode is that you control the machine, the machine does not control you. Please, don't ask how long I've been logged on at this point. I give this one a high. Does a good job of going back, but not retreading the same ground, and written with some wit. And yes, I realize I gave Shore Leave itself a medium, but all things are not equal, as Mr. Spock will one day say. 
With this magical liquid, no person of the opposite sex can resist you. It matters not whether you are young, old, fat, ugly, or repugnant. Another sequel of sorts, Mudd's Passion. Harry Mudd is back, and so is actor Roger C. Carmel, and he's got a scheme more or less like that of his first appearance. Instead of the Venus drug, uh, we have love crystals that make the first person you touch fall in love with you. The scheme doesn't work because of a final irony, simple but well done. Uh, Mudd is in good form here and much less annoying than in previous appearances. The episode gives Nurse Chapel the chance to put a love spell on Spock, but the lovin' gets into the Enterprise's pipes and affects everyone else, too. We get to see McCoy flirt, and there's a somewhat strange sequence where Kirk and Spock are enjoying their friendship a little too much. Uh, they are normally so fiercely loyal to one another, I can only surmise the drug also makes you sappy. Much worse is when the feline Mares puts the moves on Scotty, not because I've got something against interspecies romance, but just because the character's so lame and boring. Less of her, please! And though this attempts to be rather adult with its talk of romance and hangovers, there are still big monsters for the kiddies. The Rocky Godzillas have an interesting look as far as these things go, uh, even if they are highly improbable. Overall, I'd say Mud's Passion was a little dull despite the elements involved. So a medium, it's not bad or anything, but I have trouble summoning up enthusiasm for Mud's Passion. Maybe it's the fact I've never really liked Harry Mud. Maybe it's the Chapel-Spock romance that's been overdone. Uh, but at least Nurse Chapel gets something to do here. Episode 11, The Terratin Incident. We're contracting. That's why our weight remains the same. Same number of atoms. The effect is just reducing the space between the molecules. Predicting one little ship almost 20 years ahead of its time, the premise, which has Kirk and crew slowly shrink to an inch in height, is total fluff. But it's still entertaining fluff. I'm more impressed by how scientifically such a ludicrous idea was approached. Attention is paid to the crew's perceptions. They think their tools are growing, and they explain why they don't drop out of their clothes. I also like how they have the crew climbing up makeshift ladders, have trouble with the doors, etc. A bit too much takes place atop counters, uh, making things more difficult for them. And there's an atrocious scene with Chapel falling into an aquarium, but otherwise, all the small stuff is pleasant enough. Thought was put into the Territons, though again, the premise is hard to gobble up. Uh, something has to be said for the neat and original visuals, however, such as when an entire city is beamed aboard the ship. It's loony, yes, but the whole thing is worth it for the sheer fun of it. We learned that Starfleet uniforms are made of algae, really. Uh, medium rewatchability. Though the premise belies a Saturday morning cartoon flavor, there's still some care put into explaining it somewhat reasonably. In fact, possibly more than some of the third season's science fantasy. I like it, but yeah, it's not very deep. Episode 12, The Time Trap. Core returns, though voiced by James Doohan, as both his ship and the Enterprise are drawn into a pocket dimension version of the Bermuda Triangle where time has little meaning. There, they find the hulks of the many ships that have disappeared in the region, something clearly impossible to realize on the old show's budget, and a utopia run by the many prisoners, including Vulcans, Romulans, Andorians, and Gorn. Check that out, Rob. Uh, to escape the Enterprise and Clothos, Kor's ship mentioned by Kor in DS9's Once More Into the Breach, so that links back, must cooperate, but the Klingons may be attempting some treachery. This is all well played, and it's fun to see the interior of the Klingon ship. There's perhaps not enough done with the natives, but they do help save the ship. Their leader is ridiculously dressed in only a bikini, but that's old-school Star Trek for you. She's aptly voiced by Nichelle Nichols, though I somewhat regard the use of regulars' voices on guest characters overdone in this episode. Nichols and Takei each play two extra characters, and Doohan a whopping five. Sometimes you plain out recognize them, and in an attempt 
attempt to differentiate between characters when they have dialogue together, Nichols makes the psychic terribly annoying. No! The Klingons have hidden an explosive aboard the Enterprise. But that's nitpicking in the overall scheme of things, since the time trap comes off as a solid entertainment with some tension. The Klingons are a force to be reckoned with, and Duan does a passable core. The later mention of the Clothos helps make the animated series canonical, though the SS Bonaventure, as the first warp-capable ship, does not. Yeah, I'm giving this one a high. The animated series is most watchable when it links to the original series and somehow links to future series. As with yesteryear's various mentions of Vulcan's Forge, uh, Shakar, and Amanda's maiden name, the time trap has at least one element that pays off later. On to the Ambergris element. It's an underwater episode that could not have been a possibility effects-wise until rather recently, and even more recent forays into the deep don't go to the extremes depicted in this episode, i.e. have the main characters swimming and talking underwater. Silly premise, yes, but the sheer originality of the world it creates is worth watching. The underwater cities are interesting, the alien animals, though fantastic, are cool enough, and there's something at least amusing in having Kirk and Spock play Aquaman, complete with web fingers. The Starfleet side of this equally holds my interest with the aqua shuttle a nice idea there's also a starfleet boat and sigbay having a fish tank as kirk says i can't run the ship from an aquarium the crew gets to solve many problems by their involvement uh, tying all loose ends very neatly too neatly perhaps well each episode has no more than 20 minutes to do its thing so uh, it's quite well plotted in that sense if I had a problem with the episode, accepting the premise at face value, it's that it scans a bit too much like a fantasy quest with old dungeons, magical animals that hold a cure to mutations, etc. It's got its science fiction rationale, though, so that's only a matter of structure, I think. Not much of a complaint, after all. It's surprisingly likable. I'm giving it a high. It's campy, yes, but there's a lot of originality here, and the story is at least internally logical. A good, if weird, little adventure. Episode 14, The Slaver Weapon. Stasis boxes and their contents are the only remnant of a species which ruled most of this galaxy a billion years ago. Their effect on science has been incalculable. A very odd episode for two reasons. First of all, it's notable for not featuring the Enterprise or all of its crew. Only Spock, Sulu, and Uhura are featured. Secondly, SF superstar Larry Niven brought in the Kzin from his Known Space series, along with many elements of Known Space history. The only time Star Trek has really crossed over with another property in an episode, though the comics have done it. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot more Niven than there is Roddenberry here, with Known Space's history being added to Star Trek wholesale. How can the animated series truly be considered canonical when we now have to include the slavers, the man Kzin war, the gravity belts as basis for starship anti-grav, etc.? Niven didn't even respect the show's format, simply plugging in three of the crew into his short story instead of its original protagonists. What's more, all the new history has been related to the audience in the form of long exposition. On the upside, there is a richness to Niven's setting that certainly makes for interesting listening, uh, if not viewing, unless Niven actually meant the Xin to be dressed in screaming pink spacesuits. It's also fun that Uhura and Sulu get some action. Both come off as smart and gutsy people, still managing to stay true to their characters. The plot itself is fine, though it's no replacement for reading the actual short story. It's just severely out of place in the Star Trek universe. You know, I guess the Sulaban aren't the only important alien race to have disappeared from history without a trace. 
Uh, it's a medium, though a solid enough piece of writing with an okay final twist. It suffers from not really being Star Trek. Better than Assignment Earth, but, you know, just as mystifying. Next, The Eye of the Beholder. It's a barely apt name for the episode. It features a zoo planet run by giant, highly intelligent telepathic slugs. And while these guys are semi-believable and interesting, their collection suffers from one of the animated series' weaknesses. And that weakness is the lack of budget restrictions have made the creation of outlandish alien creatures so tempting the creatures actually go too far. A lot of these could never have evolved and seemed pulled straight out of Sword and Sorcery series. That said, I do like the visual of the giant lizard McCoy gets trapped under. So what the episode lacks in realism, it makes up for in creativity. As for plot, it's a dumbed-down version of the cage, but that's not a bad place to start. The focus is less on human nature and more on escaping the cage, it's fine. Scotty gets to play a vital role, apparently being mentally on par with a lectern baby. Uh, it's fun, even though he and Spock need to act as a chorus, lending their voices to the silent antagonist. A pretty standard entertainment. Giving it a medium, it's an average episode. Nothing annoying, but nothing too inspiring either. It's followed by the Jihad. While I can't say the Jihad is derivative of other Star Trek stories, it is derivative of Sword and Sorcery. Again, the quest for an almost magical artifact, the unrealistic geography, the makeup of the expedition, a thief, a hunter, a fighter. Uh, and worst of all, the it-never-happened ending seemed pulled out of a D&D adventure module. And yet the episode can't be ignored because many of its elements will be featured in later stories, uh, either by design or coincidence, like Gambit, the Genesis planet from Star Trek III, uh, and the Vulcan Forge story arc. It may not be a whole lot like Star Trek. Kirk even refuses the attention of a woman, not once, but twice. I guess it's hard to fit romance in the 22-minute format. But it's a fun adventure nonetheless. The dangers are many and the solutions work well. Best of all is that the Jihad is a visual feast with a lot of cool environments, aliens, and even a vehicle. This couldn't be done in live action, yet doesn't feel too fantastic despite the premise. A fair twist at the end, but the wrap-up leaves something to be desired. No consequences, no one will ever know, no time has passed, your memories will fade. It's a bit much. I still give it medium, good action-adventure stuff, and some memorable guest characters, but the fantasy tropes are too central to the plot, and the rushed ending leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Still a nice special effects extravaganza on which to end that first season. Orion's little game of neutrality and piracy is over. I have the Orion vessel, sir. This is Captain Kirk. We have your captain as prisoner. The second, much shorter season starts with the Pirates of Orion. They return, the Orions, and this time we get to see them in the flesh. You might remember that aside from a couple of slave girls, all we ever saw of the Orions in the original series was a ship effect. Uh, that was in Journey to Babel. And even that wasn't clear. They don't disappoint. The Orions themselves are a good design without being anything really special, but their ship is pretty cool. And you can sort of believe it would be from the same culture that produced the spinning star design seen earlier. The SS Huron isn't as cool, looking more than a little bulky, but it's not an uninteresting freighter. And I did like the idea of Starfleet Merchant Marines. What most impressed me about the Pirates of Orion, however, was the acting. Yep, William Shatner usually gives a merely adequate performance on these. Never too emotional. But here, with Spock's life in danger, you can hear a sense of urgency in Kirk's voice throughout. It's on par with the live-action stuff. The original series became increasingly concerned with the friendship between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, but the animated series didn't make it as central. By bringing it back full force, the episode gets emotional weight it otherwise wouldn't have had. Throw in some good action and some fairly adult politics, and you, you've got an episode I'd have liked to see 
be part of the canon, giving it a high. It does one thing wrong, really, and that's mispronouncing the word Orion. Orion. It does many things right, chief among them exploring the bond between the three stars of the show and showing us what Orions are like, something we'd been denied during the original series. Episode 18 is called BEM, B-E-M. So bug-eyed monster. Fans of continuity may be interested to learn that Kirk's middle initial is first revealed to stand for Tiberius in this episode. In live action, it wouldn't be until Star Trek VI that this would be confirmed. Other than that tidbit, Bem offers a fair story with some unusual aliens, uh, but nothing too spectacular. The idea of an exchange officer would recur later, but it's pretty original here. Bem is appropriately alien in attitude and methods, though his ability to disassemble his body is ultimately too strange and fantastic to be believed. Triple creator David Gerald wrote this episode, and he seems to have a fondness for characters that annoy Kirk. William Shatner plays that well enough here, as for the antagonists, the primitive lizard men look pretty neat, and for once, Kirk doesn't try to destroy the alien machine... machine? Intelligence? That's in charge of their native culture. Overall, I think this episode keeps us guessing, with a few twists and turns. I only wish they didn't feel the need to go into science fantasy territory with Bem himself, or else give a reasonable explanation for his splitting abilities. The lesson at the end is all too heavy-handed, but not a bad one to pass on to the Saturday morning crowd. And that lesson, of course, is that it's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from them. Uh, I give it a medium, some canonical interests, and a more or less unpredictable story, some fair visuals. On the other hand, it's not quite that memorable. It's followed by the practical Joker. We used to pull stunts like this in medical school with trick glasses. Don't look now, but we've got a practical Joker in our midst. No, let's not jump to conclusions, Bones. Yes, we all got wet, so what's the joke? Whenever Star Trek delves into purely comedic territory, it misses more often than it hits. Case in point, this episode, in which the Enterprise computer goes a bit nuts and starts playing pranks on the crew. Was this really an appropriate episode into which to bring the Romulans? They're more or less wasted here, which seems to be their lot in life, as the front seat is given to the computer's often unfunny jokes. Some of it works, like Kirk's shirt that says Kirk is a jerk and uh, Spock's instruments giving him a black eye. If you don't find those funny, then the rest will be pretty lame. Dribble glasses are pretty much the top of the pile, with various malfunctions barely qualifying. Uh, the Enterprise is spewing out a huge starship-shaped balloon, while original is pure hogwash. The actors do a fair job with what they're given, but the plot is flimsy at best. Of interest to Star Trek fans is the first appearance of a holodeck, predating the next generation by 13 years. Uh, with it comes the first holodeck malfunction. So these things were death traps from the start. Uh, without any living creatures simulated, it even makes sense within the context of possible technological development, though. Sure looks like the animated series was a goldmine for later series, canon or not. A medium rewatchability in this case. It's only medium because the holodeck's first appearance is relevant. If we just go by the story elements, I'm afraid we'll stall at low. Episode 20, and this is the 100th Star Trek episode of all. Albatross starts off interestingly enough, with McCoy being accused of causing a plague some 19 years prior after a medical relief mission. Commander Demos. I have here a warrant for the arrest and trial of one of your party, Captain. Warrant? Who? You are hereby directed to surrender for trial by the people of Dramia, Dr. Leonard McCoy, medical officer, USS Enterprise. This is some kind of joke. He's put on trial for mass slaughter while the crew head for the plague planet to get evidence to free him. It's a solid premise, 
uh, supported by nicely drawn aliens and environments. Kirk gets a good moment when he bends the rules and tricks a Dramian into boarding the ship to avoid interference with his investigation. Uh, once the crew gets the plague, however... It's slow going, in large part because the acting has to be lethargic. Still, there's a certain amount of padding here, with too many ship shots and worried looks on the bridge. Worse than the pacing, slowing to a crawl is the reason for the plague in the first place. It is totally nonsensical, and isn't even internally consistent. I mean, this is a story in which viruses are carried on light beams. Medium for me. It starts out well enough, but the conclusion isn't well thought out, and it fails a premise that had potential. It's still watchable until then, however. Episode 21, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth. I am a Comanche captain. I've studied the histories of many ancient Earth peoples, especially my own. That ship out there bears a strong resemblance to a god in Mayan and Aztec legends, Kukulkan. Captain, library computer confirms that Ensign Walking Bear is correct. The Mayas had a legend of a winged serpent god who came from the skies bringing knowledge. This episode benefits from its Mayan-Aztec influences in a number of ways. For one thing, despite the space-astronaut connection, it just doesn't turn up in television SF very often. For another, everything here is gorgeously realized. A lot of new artwork appears in this episode, definitely not the cartoon equivalent of a bottle show. The plot about one or more of humanity's gods being an alien visitor has been seen before, but Kukulkin's story isn't quite Apollo's. Though like the Greek god, he can be a sympathetic character. It was fun to see a Native American character, Dawson Walking Bear, take Sulu's place for an episode, though it's too bad his presence had to be tied into the plot so closely. I would have liked to see this guy develop. I don't know if that would have happened anyway, since Eryx and Mares never did, and a similar character on Voyager would eventually remain pretty static too, if you know what I mean. This one gets a high. It was a lot of great artwork, a fair mystery, and a guest star that proves to be a valuable crew member. I can see why this one would have won some acclaim. It was even sent to the International TV Film Festival in Monte Carlo. Finally, the series ends on the counterclock incident. Captain's Log Supplemental. We have 11 minutes of real time left to reach the dead star, but all around, my crew are turning into children, unable to operate the ship. As you may or may not be aware, Robert April was the original name of the Enterprise captain in Gene Roddenberry's first treatment. That changed to Pike, and when another character was required, to Kirk. Traditionally, a picture of Roddenberry in Starfleet Duds has been used as a placeholder for April, and the character has been considered canonical despite never appearing on screen. Well, he appeared once, and it was in this, the last episode of the animated series. Unfortunately, while he and his wife are engaging characters, the plot of the counterclock incident is scientifically ridiculous and not at all well thought out taking away from his appearance. There's a lot to grate on the nerves, from the mention of Warp 32 to the idea that the Enterprise was the first warp-capable ship, um, but the antimatter universe is so fantastical as to wring out every ounce of suspension of disbelief I have in me. It's got a white sky and black stars, but light seems to work the same way as here. Uh, there, time is supposed to run in reverse, and people talk backwards, age backwards but still have linear lives in the other direction. Further, it seems to flow at an incredible speed, but the natives don't change at the same rate as the crew does. It's all quite silly, with the Enterprise flying backwards for no discernible reason uh, through most of this episode, and the crew losing their memories as they grow younger, which makes no sense if you think about it, and is totally inconsistent within the episode. Now, it's amazing that such a dismal plot would be reused a couple times in later series. 
Voyager used the same stupid premise in Innocence, and Counterclock foresaw the transporter-activated reset button used in TNG's Rascals. Many sins can be traced back to this episode, it seems, and despite all that, there's something inherently fun about the crew becoming little kids. The antimatter universe has you know, a striking look, and it's nice to finally see the Aprils despite the rather unnecessary reset to status quo for them at the end. Extra points for using supernovas from the show's history itself, uh, from All Our Yesterdays and The Empath, as part of the plot. Doesn't get above medium rewatchability. Watch it for a glimpse of the other Enterprise captain, but check your brain at the door. The plot is pure hogwash. And that's it for the animated series. Our friend David Gallagher couldn't send in a clip for any of these, but he did want people to know that, in the States at least, the animated series is available for free on the CWC. So that's CWC.com. The animated series is in there. And since most people pay for Netflix anyway, it is, as far as I know, still on Netflix. And the show did a whole discussion on the animated series as well, so in more general, broader strokes. Uh, I sat down with Aaron Bias in episode 5, if you're looking for that. Now let's talk about the movies. Obviously, only four of these actually came out during the wilderness years, the so-called wilderness years. But let's keep them in a block and do all six reviews. And of course, it starts with the motion picture. What I'm reminded of each time I think of the motion picture is how long and boring it is. Well, it doesn't help that there isn't a clear villain. The real problem, I think, is that it takes a 2001 Space Odyssey approach to all the outdoor scenes. But what worked there doesn't work here. Not for an action-adventure franchise. So you've got long sweeping shots of the Enterprise, long sweeping shots of V'ger, long effect shots of V'ger's cloud which are especially dull, the ride through the wormhole, which is totally unnecessary except to show off you know, more acid-induced effects, a couple of boring conversations in alien languages, oh yes, and Spock's trippy journey into V'ger's digitized universe. Great photography, but there's too much of it, even in the better-edited special edition. It slows the movie down to a lethargic crawl. The plot is equally problematic, being very much copied from The Changeling, with Metamorphosis's ending tacked on. Nomad, V'ger, it's the same exact premise with the numbers filed off. Too close, in fact, for Kirk not to have a sense of déjà vu throughout. At least Nomad had some personality. V'ger doesn't really have that, not even through Ilea, who barely got a personality herself. Decker is better, but these two seem to be leftovers from when the movie was going to be a new TV series and are doomed from the start since they're only guest stars. The models look great, and it's really cool to see how big the Enterprise can be on the inside. Uh, the wreck deck, the engine room... Uh, even the bridge is bigger, but the design is largely hit and miss. Everything's blinding white, which again recalls 2001, but also all the SF of the 70s, from Star Wars to Battlestar Galactica. The new uniforms are equally lame, terribly drab color palette overall. The new Klingons are at least alien, but we're not quite there yet, although the uniforms and computer screen signage will carry through to much later Trek. The music also stands out, and some of it will be reused often, including the main theme, which will become TNG's, and the Klingon theme. The music is much too dynamic for the on-screen action, though. As far as the main characters are concerned, only the big three get any real development. But that's not unusual. It's just sad. Uh, there's nothing really original or exciting happening to them, but there is one moment I find uh, affecting in the movie. After Spock returns from his meld with V'ger, he tells Kirk about it and very emotionally shows what V'ger is missing from its life. This simple feeling is beyond V'ger's comprehension. No meaning, no hope. And Jim, no answers. It's asking questions. 
Is this all that I am? Is there nothing more? Uh, it's a powerful moment, well acted by Nimoy, but it's the only one of note in the entire film. The rest is by the numbers, follow the plot material. The special edition does cut down on the extended effects shots and fixes a few effects besides. We now see V'ger without the cloud, and that's cool. Uh, plus, it restores a small scene here and there. For example, Ilya's uh, empathic healing powers. Interesting, but since she's just a cannon fodder, who cares? The special edition is a vast improvement on the theatrical release, but it doesn't save the motion picture from being a slow-paced series of effects and reaction shots. So personally, I call this a low. It has a good scene here and there, but this is the most boring of all the Star Trek movies, including Star Trek V, and without the wow factor of seeing a movie-quality enterprise that might have influenced fans back in the day, there's little to engage the audience here. However, our good friend Gene Hendricks is a great lover of this film, and he's recorded a defense, I shouldn't call it a defense, a, a tribute of his love for the motion picture. Let's listen. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such podcasts as Give Me That Star Trek Episode Number One. Well, I'm here to talk to you about my all-time favorite Star Trek movie, Star Trek The Motion Picture. And no, I do not say that ironically. It is actually my favorite movie. Now, I could talk for hours, and I have, about this movie, but I'm going to focus in on one thing for this particular conversation. That will be the subject of pacing. Specifically, the space shots. Now, Siskoid rightly compared Star Trek The Motion Picture to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Both use slow camera moves and long shots of model spaceships, and to great effect. However, the conclusions that he drew in that comparison, in my opinion, were the wrong way around. See, to me, the shots in 2001 do nothing but make the audience as sleepy as Dr. Haywood Floyd is in the actual movie, whereas the shots in Star Trek The Motion Picture actually serve a purpose. Now, we'll focus in on three in particular. The first being the travel pod scene, or starship porn, as some people have termed it. And this is when Mr. Scott takes Admiral Kirk from the space station over to the Enterprise. And we see a long shot of the Enterprise first through the grating of the space dock and then front on with the great Jerry Goldsmith score. And eventually we go all the way around the Enterprise and dock in the cargo bay. Now, what do, purpose does this serve? Well, twofold, really. First, for those who have seen the TV show Star Trek, it shows exactly what is different about this Enterprise. The look of it, the feel of it, you can see on Kirk's face some confusion. Now, the second purpose is to show just how big the Enterprise is. This is not a small ship. This is not a small one-man fighter. This is something with a crew of 400 individuals. And the flyover shows you just how big that is, especially when the travel pod finally docks, and you see just how tiny that is compared to the rest of the ship. This will be important later. The second scene I want to talk to you about is the wormhole scene, where the engine imbalance creates a warp effect that the ship cannot get out of. Many people have said that this has no purpose at all. I strongly disagree. This is where 
Commander, formerly Captain Decker, is forced to counterman Captain Kirk's order about firing the phasers. Now, what this does is it brings to a head the conflict that has been brewing between Decker and Kirk since Kirk told him he was taking over the Enterprise. This makes Kirk face Decker head-on and gives both Decker and Kirk a time to air their grievances, with McCoy standing by to point out to Kirk later that he's wrong, that Decker was actually in the right. Now, from this point on, they're not the best of buddies. However, this is where Kirk and Decker start working together. There's a little bit of antagonism, but that makes for good drama. Without that wormhole scene, there wouldn't have been that forced confrontation. Now, for the big one. And I mean that metaphorically and literally. The V'ger flyover. This is where many people say that the, the film drags. I can see some of their point. Yes, I'm not completely oblivious to this. However, remember when we saw just how big the Enterprise is? Well, this is showing us how much bigger V'ger is. This is showing just how long it takes for this, what we consider, huge starship to get into the cloud and then over V'ger's actual ship. Now, something else that you may notice is the rapt attention that the crew is paying to the view screen on the bridge. Some of these people have been in space as their career for years, decades even, and they are fascinated. They are enraptured. They are puzzled. And you're seeing this reaction on their faces, and that shows us, the viewer, who doesn't have that experience, just how unusual this cloud and this ship are. It takes a long time, but it is building showing you how huge V'ger is, how much power V'ger has, and it makes the threat that much more palpable. This is not the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, where Vulcan is a 30-second warp jump away from Earth, and where you can see the destruction of a planet from one in a different solar system. This is actual space sizes. This is a cloud that, even in the director's cut where they cut it down, this cloud takes up Earth's entire orbit. That is how huge we are talking, and that's what the Beecher flyover scene shows us. It doesn't just tell us this, it proves it to us by showing us. So I would recommend, with this in mind, maybe rewatch those scenes. See if you can get something a little different out of it. I don't think this is going to change everyone's mind. I understand that. There are some people who just don't like the movie. Fine, that's your taste. I am not here to arbitrate taste. What I am doing is trying to open your eyes to some other variations. Rather than looking at this as a slow movie, look at it as a dramatic movie, as a movie that builds tension upon tension. With that in mind, I will take my leave of you. Gene Hendricks, signing off. Thanks, Gene. And now for Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Khan! Khan! 
here the franchise gets a, a fresh start, looking a lot better than it did the last time around. Though it's a little sad to see the color coding go, the red uniforms have a much more naval flavor, which is great for the more militaristic story. The interiors are more cramped than in the motion picture, but more appropriate, I think. And when it comes to other Starfleet ships, Reliant sets the tone for the future. Keep the saucer and the cells, but invite variation. Nice phaser effects, creature effects, ship-to-ship battles. Some of the first computer effects in cinema, the Genesis effect, complement the overall design of the film. In short, it looks really good. Uh, bringing Khan back, as was a stroke of genius, this is one of the few villains you could actually admire and who was Kirk's mental equal. The fate of his new world and wife set him on a Melvillian revenge and intensely played by Ricardo Montalban. He chews up the screen something fierce and his sparring with Kirk is always memorable, which is some feat considering that they never meet face to face in the movie. Kirk's experience is quite able to match Khan's genetically engineered mind and using the Kobayashi Maru scenario as a theme throughout really works to make Kirk's a master tactician. Spock's final solution isn't as clever, perhaps, but his death comes as a real shock, despite it being presaged in an earlier sequence. It's poignant, but beaten by his funeral, uh, which rarely fails to bring in a tear to my eye. The profound loss we feel serves to highlight the theme of mortality that runs through the film. It's great stuff, and the final moments are hopeful that this isn't the end of Star Trek's most iconic character. I should say a couple words on various supporting characters as well. Carol Marcus is most lively and an easy match for Kirk. David is on the annoying side in the mold of precocious geniuses, but we can understand where he's coming from given his mother's upbringing. And it's not... That's surprising to see that Kirk has left his seed somewhere. Uh, there may be more little Kirklings we don't know about. You don't get to see much of Captain Terrell, but what's there is good and we're sorry to see him go. The most important addition to Trek is Kirstie Alley's Savick. She's quite interesting as a youth, more disciplined than her more seasoned seniors, and provides some eye candy in addition to real professionalism. The special edition restores a couple of moments, most notably giving Scotty a doomed nephew in Peter Preston, but I don't think they really do much to enhance a theatrical release. The original Wrath of Khan was already great, with some minor pacing issues here and there, especially in the submarine battle at the end. Definitely high rewatchability, though I don't call this my favorite. I know it's a lot of people's, and it's definitely worthy of being so. As I said earlier in the show, it was one of the first movies I ever went to see without parental accompaniment, uh, when I was all of 12, perhaps, and it remains as potent today as it did back when the world was new. Let's hear from a couple of my Fire and Water cohorts. First is the irredeemable Shag with his favorite moment from the film. Stardate, June 4th, 1982. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Hi there, I'm the Irredeemable Shag from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm really excited to contribute to Siskoi's coverage of favorite Star Trek movies. In fact, the original crew movie era is my personal favorite era of Star Trek. Now, I asked if I could cover a particular moment from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and I don't have to tell you what an amazing film it is. Obviously, it's one of my favorites. In fact, I feel confident in saying that it's not just a great Star Trek movie, but it's, it's simply a great movie, regardless of the genre. Now, when you break it down, Star Trek II is really the story about a man, James T. Kirk, who's beginning to feel his age. That's it. That's the whole story in a nutshell. All the moody space battles, the amazing Ricardo Montalban, who's like a force of nature in this movie, and everything else is simply there to tell the story of Kirk getting older and feeling the choices from his past are haunting him. 
Now, there's three big decisions in Kirk's past that sort of echo throughout the film. First is he regrets choosing to accept his position of admiral, more specifically leaving the bridge of a starship. Second, he's haunted by agreeing to stay away and let Carol Marcus raise David without him. And third, years before, Kirk chose to exile a criminal, and now that criminal is back for vengeance. It's not that he regrets that decision, but it's a decision from his past that's haunting him. All of this is there to tell a story about getting older and facing the choices you've made. The story's always spoken to me, but now that I'm middle-aged myself, I can really feel it even more. There's one scene of the film that I feel lays all of this out in just under three minutes. It's one of my favorite scenes. Now, I'm not saying it's the best scene in the movie. If I was, we'd be here arguing about Spock's death, or the funeral, or the Mutaran Nebula, or even buried alive. I'm talking about the quiet little scene on Earth in Kirk's apartment with Bones. Yeah, the awesome, funky space apartment. (laughs) These are two old friends. They're chilling out after work, sharing a drink. It's Kirk the civilian, something we rarely see. Now, this moment was set up perfectly in the scene before it. When Spock's leaving for the Enterprise, he asks Kirk where he's heading. Kirk responds, home. But the tone in his voice tells the tale. He regrets that the Enterprise isn't his home anymore. Now, as we discuss this scene, there's a few things we've got to touch on. First is the fun part, which is Kirk's apartment itself. You know, we're talking Kirk's decor. You know, there's model sailing ships, there's navigational equipment, there's ancient weapons. Now, some people have suggested that this was a pre-furnished apartment and the decor was there when Kirk moved in. Personally, I don't think so. They established that Kirk has a fascination with antiques. And let's face it, he's a warrior and a man's man, right? So I think Kirk decorated the apartment himself, which sort of explains why it's kind of nuts. Now think about it. He's a middle-aged guy who spent the majority of his life on essentially a military ship at sea. Even though we've known him on the Enterprise, he's probably served on several different ships. He's never had the option of decorating a place very much. He's always got to be on the move. He's ready to pack up at any minute and jump to another ship. You know, he's got to travel light. That's the military life. Now, suddenly, he's living on Earth. He's staying in one place. He's putting down roots. He has to decorate, but he has no idea how. So, we probably all know in real life, like, a middle-aged guy who's been married for, like, I don't know, 25 years or something, and suddenly gets divorced. He has no idea how to decorate his new place, because his wife always took care of that. So he decorates with whatever he thinks is cool, or he thinks others will be impressed with. And this decor in Kirk's apartment screams to me that Kirk's trying to impress others, but not really understanding the subtlety of it. And don't forget, Kirk was probably decorating the place with the thought of impressing the ladies with his manlyhood. I mean, come on, it's Kirk. It's his woman trap, you know? Though he really has no idea what he's doing. The decor itself is almost another example of Kirk getting older and not knowing how to deal with it. So the second big thing we got to talk about is Kirk and Bones' friendship. You know, these are two old friends having a quiet drink. They're comfortable together. They're honest with each other. There's even comfortable silences. These guys just fit together. You know they probably sat there all night in front of the fire just catching up or talking about old times or the latest news, whatever. You know, actually, I'm, I'm kind of jealous. All my closest friends live in other towns, so uh, I want that when I'm that age. You know, I want to just sit back with a close buddy and chill out in the evening. That'd be fun. All right, the third and most important thing to talk about is Kirk feeling old and regretful. And you can sum it up all in Bones' brutally honest lines. Damn it, Jim, what the hell's the matter with you? Other people have birthdays. Why are we treating yours like a funeral? And then he goes on to say, This is not about age, and you know it. It's about you flying a goddamn computer console when you want to be out there hopping galaxies. That sets it all up. Kirk is regretting the choices he's made in his life. As the movie progresses, the regret gets worse when David Marcus enters the picture and then Khan enters the picture. This quiet little scene sets up the whole movie. In fact, the scene is so important, they tried to recreate it in Star Trek Beyond when Kirk and Bones share a drink on Kirk's birthday. It's that powerful and that important. Now, you can follow Kirk's journey after this scene in a few different ways. You can watch just this film and feel that it tells a complete story about Kirk facing his previous choices and moving forward, feeling younger again. Or you can watch this movie and Kirk's feelings as a setup for both Star Trek 3 and Star Trek 4 
finally resolving at the end of the voyage home as Kirk takes command of the bridge of the Enterprise A. Either choice is valid, however you want to decide. Well, my thanks to Siskoid for a chance to discuss one of my favorite films and one of my favorite scenes, regardless of how kooky the decor is. I love these movies, and I love Kirk's journey. And I love that Kirk gets to feel young again. And here's Chris Franklin's, also a big fan of Star Trek II. One Star Trek movie scene that I've always liked, but it really jumped out at me when I recently saw the director's cut of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in the theater was the reveal of Kirk's bluff from the Genesis cave. This is only moments after the famous Khan scene. Everyone, I mean everyone, remembers that yell. But what few remember is that was mostly an act. Kirk was playing Khan the whole time, and the guy with the quote-unquote superior intellect never even knew it. He'd already bluffed Khan once before with the whole disabling of the shields thing. Khan may have read Milton and Shakespeare, but he never mastered poker. Of course, this calls back to many episodes of the original series, including the first regular episode film, The Corbomite Maneuver. And Kirk's overacting to sell such a deception was readily apparent in the Enterprise incident, where he really hammed it up as the captain seemingly gone mad. Vulcan death grip, anyone? In Wrath of Khan, Kirk and Spock had crafted this bluff while communicating on a channel they knew Khan was monitoring. The fact that these two old friends and comrades could devise this plan with no specific dialogue between them over the quote-unquote phone speaks volumes about the relationship and their history together. And Kirk says those immortal lines, I don't like to lose. He first says it in reference to the Kobayashi Maru test, when, where David accuses him of cheating when he modified the no-win scenario. And then he rings up Spock and asks if they are ready to beam him back up. The repairs that Khan had heard would take several days really only took about two hours. Bones gives a knowing little grin, and Savick learns why Kirk lives up to his reputation. But notice that Kirk is biting into an apple as he says this. He's picked an apple from a virtual Garden of Eden, and he's about to pay for his hubris by losing his best friend. He gets that friend back, but he loses his son, the one who dared to play God and create his own paradise. So you can take that apple bite even further if you'd like. So much depth in this scene, so much character development, and it's true to the character we knew so well from those 70 plus episodes. The con scream is remembered by many as Kirk being a hammy, impulsive hothead. It's also prime evidence in the case that Shatner is a hammy actor as well. But while there is a bit of truth in both of those statements, there is far more to both the character and the actor and this is a great moment for both of them. Moving on to Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Now, following directly from The Wrath of Khan, The Search of Spock can't help but be part of something good. Yes, it lags at times, and the whole Katra thing and the Genesis planet evolving super fast are more fantasy than science, but it feels like a big event movie, and it is. Does it cheapen the previous movie to resurrect Spock? You have to balance it with whether or not Star Trek is better with him than without him. I think most will agree that we're better with him. The theme of the many sacrificing themselves for the one is at the heart of this picture, and I've always felt friendship was at the heart of the original series. It's both exciting and touching to see the crew give up their careers for a chance to save Spock's soul. 
This time around, they all get to do a little something. DeForest Kelly manages to channel Spock in an eerie performance. Scotty sabotages the Excelsior. Sulu and Uhura get good moments in McCoy's escape attempt. Uh, she hasn't been this sassy since Mirror Mirror, really, and I was really sorry to see her be left behind on Earth. Chekhov's the exception, basically just filling a seat, but he's largely useless in the films anyway. Savick is now played by Robin Curtis, and while her characterization is fine, she's just not the same Savick. She's much more Vulcan, for one thing. David Marcus returns only to meet his end, but he does so bravely, and I'm always flattened by Kirk's reaction to his son's death. He stumbles back, misses his chair, and it takes him a second to get himself back under control. Even talking about it sometimes, I can get teary-eyed. And if the audience isn't quite that attached to David... It is attached to the Enterprise, which is next to go. It's an awesome sequence as a self-destruct is finally brought to term, kind of daring. No discussion of this movie would be complete without mentioning Krug and the revamped Klingons. Though we'd seen them in the motion picture, they weren't very well fleshed out. The fright makeup is much more subtle here and better, and the Klingon language starts to get codified. And the Bird of Prey, wow. Much cooler than the Klingon cruiser. Christopher Lloyd brings a lot of gusto to his performance of Krug, and I've always had a good time mimicking his delivery when quoting lines from the movie. Get out! Get out of there! Yeah, that bit. The search for Spock is uneven, however. Aside from the problems mentioned, uh, there's the cantina scene. That's way too much like Star Wars for comfort. And the other Starfleet captains are totally incompetent. Otherwise, there's enough humor to counterbalance the drama, and the film comes off as a good sequel to The Wrath of Khan. I give it a high. Again, you need to watch this one anyway if you're going to watch the better films preceding and following it. But it stands on its own with good performances, history-making events, and a memorable villain. Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. Seems like this story had a number of things going against it. There's no Enterprise, there's no villain, but it manages to turn into a rollicking good time that's lighthearted without sacrificing the more serious scenes that bookend the trip through time. Star Trek's forays into comedy have been uneven, but the fish-out-of-water aspect is always amusing, and it generally works here, Jacqueline Suzanne jokes aside. And while there is no villain, yes, there is danger both for Earth and for our heroes. One of the best things about the voyage home, in fact, is that the crew must split up to solve several problems. The ship is out of power. They need to find some whale uh, and later save the whales they found. They need to build an aquarium. They need to pass themselves off as locals. And various set pieces are built around each of those dilemmas. Saving Chekhov from 20th century butchers, finding the carrier named Enterprise, nice touch, inventing transparent aluminum, um, finagling a helicopter, selling Kirk's glasses... Again, that's a nicely done bit. Befriending Jillian, etc. Lots of stuff, giving each crew member his or her chance to be useful. Against this plays the re-education of Spock. Not quite himself yet, which provides some humor. But it's also kind of sad to see. I was very happy to see both of Spock's parents return. Jane Wyatt at the start, Mark Leonard at the end. And they provide some good moments for him. Amanda reminds Spock of his human heritage, but he doesn't get it. Great scene. It's the end moment with Sarek that always gets me, though. Seeing Sarek's total discomfort when Spock shows the simple emotion of friendship. Your associates are people of good character. They are my friends. Yes, of course. No Enterprise? She's hardly missed. And she's replaced by the very cool Klingon bird of prey. It's a nice change of pace and look. And besides, we see a new Enterprise at the end, nicely bringing the story arc to a close. Reset button? Eh, a little bit. But if you want the franchise to continue, you need to do it, I think. The best part of the reset is that Kirk is bumped down to captain. 
as it was a mistake to ever make him an admiral in the first place. I'm less enamored of the final fate of Jillian. Did she need to come to the future if it was only to be swept aside? Eh. She's a problematic character for me anyway. Lively and a fair match for Kirk, but a little too aggressive for my tastes, bordering on annoying. She gets rather strident in her defense of the whales, especially during the educational film showing whales being cut up by poachers. Feels like a non-issue in our part of the world, I guess, but I really didn't need to be made aware of the situation via exposition. It's a bit preachy, I guess. It's a small flaw, however, in a generally fun movie. Another high, the 1986 setting and comedic aspects of The Voyage Home no doubt contributed to its mass appeal, making it, I think, the most commercially successful Star Trek movie up to that point. More accessible, perhaps, but that doesn't mean it's not every bit as fun for Trekkies. Star Trek V The Final Frontier. USS Enterprise, shakedown crew's report. I think this new ship was put together by monkeys. Oh, she's got a fine engine, but half the doors won't open. And guess whose job it is to make it right? Oh, that's fat. No, this one doesn't work. But every time I watch the movie, I find it it's not as bad as its reputation. By that I mean that it's worth watching for the characters. The regulars almost all get something to do. Well, Chekhov's pretty useless again, though. Uh, Sulu crashlands a shuttle into the shuttle bay, Uhura dances for the natives, Scotty plans a breakout, and the big three go camping. You might find row, 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 your, row, 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 row your boat a little painful, yes. They're all charming, and we learn new things about them, whether that's a possible relationship between Scotty and Uhura, or the visions shown McCoy and Spock by Cybok. But I particularly like Kirk refusing the whole exercise, stating, I don't want my pain taken away, I need my pain! The plot is pretty clunky, however, and the search for God is both boring and ridiculous, especially once they have to break through yet another galactic barrier, this one at the center of the galaxy. The location shooting is interesting, both on God's Planet and Nimbus 3 in Yellowstone 2, but the pacing is rather slow, so we don't care that much. There are also too many characters littering the story from the Ambassadors to Cybok's followers to the wasted pursuing Klingons. Net result? Except for Cybok himself, all the guest stars seem irrelevant, and as a villain, Cybok is too sympathetic to create any real tension. There's also a big problem with the effects in the movie. They look awful, are far less credible than in earlier films. A change of effects companies resulted in unfinished effects, according to the DVD. And even the Enterprise looks more low-tech than before. I mean, the interiors. And speaking of the ship's interiors, they're more than a little strange here. Why the steering room, for example? And the turbo shaft just isn't the shape of any turbo lift I've ever seen. Nor are the floors numbered in the right order. All in all, it's pretty dismal when compared to the fine trilogy we just had. So I give this one just barely medium. Nowhere near as awful as everyone says, but still a big disappointment. I'd watch this over the motion picture any day, and not having seen it as often as the others, there's always character moments that surprise and entertain me. If you'd like more discussion on this particular film, episode 6 was a defense of it, mounted by myself and the supermates Chris Franklin. Finally, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. I won't hide it. This is my favorite of all Star Trek films. It manages to be funny and tense at the same time, brings back the Klingons in full force, yet bridges the gap between the original series and the next generation in which the Klingons are our allies, and gives us a few surprises along the way. The political plot gives weight to the film, a real sense that things matter. The opening, for example is great. We get the usual credits over music, music that builds, attention suddenly stops, and bam, a Klingon moon explodes. Great way to start the picture, immediately followed by the revelation that Sulu has made it to captain, with a cameo by Janice Rand. Do we report this, sir? Are you kidding? 
Only the first of many memorable exchanges throughout the movie. We'll be returning to Sulu's Excelsior now and again, keeping him part of that story, whether it's to accommodate a fun Christian Slater cameo or be the cavalry saving the day at the end. As for the other cast members, they're off meeting the Klingons under a flag of peace and not liking it one bit. They remain involved in the story, even once Kirk and McCoy are sent to Rura Penthe, and they'll all get some good lines to say or bits of business to do. Chekhov may be the exception, as I find him pretty useless once again, delivering cliches and boring one-liners. Taking Savick's place in the group is Valeris, a saucy little Vulcan played by Kim Cattrall. As she's searing hot, makes the character quickly come into her own. The final mind-meld violation is one of the best and most disturbing scenes in all of Trek. Spock is back in top form, finally, and, and his... I've been dead before is another great moment for me. I could quote various moments all day, really. Uh, speaking of quotes, the Klingons and Christopher Plummer's Chang, particularly, often steal the show. Uh, the conceit that Shakespeare was originally Klingon literature is used to push Kirk's buttons. But I'm a big Shakespeare fan, like huge, so I'm not complaining. I quite like that Chang's overdoing it at times. It's perfectly in tune with Star Trek to date, which has always been big on referring to Shakespeare, using Shakespearean actors, etc. And before you ask, yes, I do own a copy of the Klingon Hamlet. The bits on Rura Penthe? Fun. Uh, seeing the Romulans again? Fun. Michael Dorn playing Worf's grandfather? Fun. The riffs on Kissinger's Cold War talks at the UN? Fun. Uh, the battles, including a zero-G assassination? Fun. Not using the Universal Translator? I think it's fun. So you can see where this is going. There are flaws, like the various racist comments made by the crew that just don't ring true. One from Scotty uses rather harsher language than, say, Denebian Slime Devil. And there's the purple blood that has caused many continuity problems since then. Nothing too, too bad. By the time it's over, the movie's done its job. And the cast has said its goodbyes, leaving the stage for the next generation, which is already going strong for about four years on TV at that time. In particular, I love the idea of the Enterprise just disappearing into the stars rather than reporting to Starbase. And Kirk's final line, changing where no man has gone before to where no one has gone before, solid. And Kirk himself completes the personal journey he began in The Wrath of Khan. Obviously, I'm giving this one a high. And I love it so much that I collaborated with Rob Kelly on Film & Water along with um, frequent guest David Ace Gutierrez, uh, that's tomorrow on the Fire and Water Network. Easy to find. Uh, we're doing a full commentary track on Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. More Trek tomorrow, at least as the podcast flies. So that covers the wilderness years and just a little bit more. Uh, my thanks to everyone who contributed, either textually or by sending in a clip, especially Gene Hendricks, The Irredeemable Shag, and Chris Franklin. And of course, my guest for the episode, Mr. Rob Kelly, who's a real podcasting machine, so you can uh, hear more from him on this very network at shows such as Film & Water, but also Digest Cast, Treasury Cast, The Actual Fire & Water Show, Who's Who, Pod Dylan, Superman Movie Minute, and a number of Fire & Water Presents features. Another short but relevant break, and I'll be back with Subspace Transmissions, Star Trek News, and your feedback. So are we going to be working together? Really? Worst film you ever saw? Well, my next one will be better. It's the Film and Water Podcast. The Film and Water Podcast covers movies new and old, classic and uh, not so classic. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, available weekly on fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. 
Incoming subspace transmissions in Star Trek news. Uh, if you're waiting for the crowdfunded Deep Space Nine documentary, What We Left Behind, and hoped it would come out to coincide with DS9's 25th anniversary in 2018, you may have to wait a bit longer. Adam Nimoy just stepped down as director, and delays have been announced in the media, not just because of this reshuffling at the top, but because the project reached its stretch goals, making it 90 minutes instead of 60, adding an orchestral score, adding interviews, etc. No release date has been announced, nor, in fact, has ever been announced. Some important dates. After Discovery's crazy mid-season finale, we're on break. The show returns for the second half of the season on January 7th, which sets its season finale on February 11th. And in a side universe close to Trek, the Orville has been renewed for a second season. I've got to say, while the humor doesn't always work for me, the nostalgia really does. It really is like watching old episodes of TNG in a way. And now your feedback on episode 15, in which Mike Lacroix compared Starfleet to actual military realities. And we start with Rob Kelly, who says it's always good to hear new perspectives on subjects that we geeks know so well, in this case Trek. And while uh, I have never been particularly interested in the military, I have always wondered just how the Federation operates as a military unit, since it seems so casual at times. From what I have read, Roddenberry took issue with the movie's more militaristic bent, something that left Harve Bennett and Nicholas Meyer a bit baffled, after all the characters are given military designations. Davides Gutierrez says a very good perspective on Starfleet. Iced D says it was interesting to hear a Canadian military point of view on Starfleet's protocols and operations, as well as learn how similarly the U.S. military operates. Uh, he says much of my early career entailed in supporting the U.S. military and Coast Guard in various civilian roles. Uh, it is conceivable that the definition of mutiny could change to a single person as a result of early space travel having smaller crews? Yeah, maybe. I guess it's semantics. He also says, I suppose the most direct extrapolation of Starfleet from a modern aspect would be NASA. It's certainly not a military organization, but is charged with defending the planet from exterior threats. At this point, it's mainly brainstorming about asteroid protection, uh, executing American space efforts, and working with other nations to conduct various missions. Mission personnel are a mix of military, non-military, and expected to follow a command structure led by a mission commander. So Starfleet having the trappings of a military organization in all but purpose isn't that much of a stretch, to me anyway. Operating a starship requires a lot to be done and done correctly, and a rigid hierarchy and chain of command allows that to happen without the ambiguity present in the bureaucracy of a purely civilian organization. I think that's well put. Brian Linton says, a very interesting topic based on the composition of the fleet itself. Starfleet does not appear to be geared towards warfare. I'm not an expert on the subject, but most Starfleet vessels, of which I'm aware, appear to be multi-purpose ships, and while all of them appear to be armed, often carry civilians, including infants and small children, well, at least in the TNG era, Brian, he goes on, he says, in addition, when you see specialized vessels, they tend to fill non-military roles, uh, the Reliant who was a science vessel, for example. I believe the Defiant is the only or the first specialized warship in the fleet, and it was only constructed out of necessity to fight the Borg. This raises all sorts of questions about the role of the military in society, particularly in a more utopian society like the Federation. What is the primary role of the military? Is it to wage war? Is it to defend the state? If the latter is true, then one could argue that diplomacy and exploration fall under the umbrella of military operations, 
just as easily as warfare. And you're right that on a political level, the ministries or departments have been called the you know departments of war and then suddenly departments of defense. So it's all about which way the, the eagle is facing. Alan W. Wright says, I particularly liked the contradiction of the lone mutineer and the discussion of the divided messes. And then he says, when Picard said Starfleet was not a military organization, my friends and I thought he was kidding himself. They had military ranks, a military academy, courts martial. They served a government and fought wars. And there was a clear distinction between Starfleet and civilians working for Starfleet. Next is Kurt Onstad. Uh, he says, that was a great episode, very informative. I grew up with a dad in the U.S. Coast Guard, so some of this was familiar to me, but I really enjoyed the deep dives, especially the mutiny rant. It wasn't all in vain, Mike. Santarin has a um, comment about the fleet captain rank that Pike once held and that seemed mysterious to Mike in the show. Uh, he says, going with the title of fleet captain, I just assumed it was based on what the US and the British had in the 1800s. In the US fleet, it's fleet captain. In British fleet, it was captain of the fleet. It was a title that told you who you commanded over, but not your rank. So, so I figured he was called that because the Admiral was at some starbase, but he was out on the field, as it were. Chris Franklin says, I've never bought that Starfleet wasn't military. That was just Roddenberry's new humanist point of view, trying to retcon that aspect of Trek away in Next Gen. I never even thought of the mutiny angle, he says. I did always figure Trek was very lax in punishing insubordination. And all those red shirts, man, I never even thought of that. And he, then he says, I have a childhood friend who is retired U.S. Marine warrant officer. Oddly enough, one of his favorite G.I. Joe characters when we played as kids was Flint, who was also a warrant officer. Although I think the cartoon totally botched the portrayal of his rank and title. I guess a G.I. Joe podcast would be better in a better position to comment on that. Uh, and Tim Price says, I just finished listening to this episode on Veterans Ar Armistice Remembrance Day. Nice timing, Siskoid. Yeah, I did that on purpose. He also says, Mike was a fantastic guest and explained the military aspects so well. It'll be great to have him back on FNW Network. Uh, I guess discussing the military operations in Star Wars would be too derivative, but I'd love to hear it. It took about halfway through the episode for me to realize my own twice-removed ties to military life, which play nicely with this discussion. First, my mother worked as a civilian government employee at the U.S. Navy R&D Center. The base has a guard post as its main entrance. You say where you're going, and for unrestricted areas like the bowling alley or movie theater, off you go. For restricted, you need a badge or to check in with the post, and then pass through another guard post around the specific building, showing how base life can be part of the local community. As for civilians and enlisted working together, uh, in my mom's job, the higher-ups were Navy, but immediate supervisors tended to be other civilians very similar to what Mike described. Uh, presently, my wife works in marketing for Virginia Military Institute. For those who don't know, it's a university that gives a military experience, so all students are cadets and go through similar things as basic training, plus working towards their college degree. Plenty of military instructors, and the president is an actual general. But certain positions in the institute can have civilian employees, and others bestow a military rank to fit the institute's mission, so professors are majors, department heads are colonels, etc., even though they are not enlisted in the military. My wife's boss, basically a writer-editor-photographer, is a major and wears the uniform, but it's an honorary rank. It wouldn't even be a non-com rank. 
but it fits the Starfleet model in interesting ways, accepting that it's a fictional military. The cadets are trained as military, and the organization uses ranks to enforce clear chains of command, but has room for bringing in experts to suit the mission of exploration. Maybe? That is a very interesting parallel. Tim, thanks for that. Some Facebook likes and shares now from Abel Padilla, Alexander Messias, Alexander Season, uh, Alan W. Wright, Chris Tyler, David S. Gutierrez, Derek William Crabb, Erwin Anthony Pilar Nanez, Phil Elefante, uh, who thought this episode was interesting, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, who said, damn, I forgot about Mike's podcast and somehow I lost the feed. Well, now there's another one I have to go catch up on. Jason Hathalid, who is surprised to hear there's a Canadian army, to which Gord Tolton came back to say, look behind you, that's not a tree. Uh, John Grenier, Juan Horatio Gonzalez, Max Romero, Max Traver, uh, Next Generation's First Generation Podcast, Patrick Delmore, Paul Riches, Raquel O'Halloran, Rob Kelly, Ryan Daly, Shag Matthews, Thomas Fovey, uh, Tommy Lim Jr., who says it was so obvious from episode 3 of Discovery, just the way Lorca runs the ship. N for NCC equals naval. So he's on the side of saying that Starfleet is military. Trudy Baker and Zumi Kanori on Google+. Plus. Uh, thank you, Outside Material and The Hammer Strikes. And on Twitter, retweets and favorites from Abel M. Vada, Alexander Ozias, who here says, Is Starfleet military? Yes? No? Maybe? He's not sure. Uh, BoldOutlaw.com says, Always like this podcast and this episode is the best. Great work. Siskoid and Mike. Uh, Coffee and Comics, Epicurus's Atheist, Firestorm Fan, Hannibal 20,000, Irredeemable Shag, Kristen Clark, Max Romero of It's Plastic Man, Need a Smoke, Rob Kelly Creative of Digest Cast, Film and Water Podcast, Hostess Ads, Pod Dylan, Superman Movie Minute, and Treasury Comics, Ryan Daly, Sammy Joe, Snoopy, The 108th Sage, Tim Price, Trickonomics, Trickbot, uh, we welcome our robot overlords, We Love Will Wheaton, William Kohler, and Zoom Yukonori. As usual, let me remind you that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter using the hashtag FWPodcasts. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. 